This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. This is the program where we're going to help you... Uh, Figure out a way through, a healthy way through this crazy thing we call life. And today, no exception. Man, if you are frustrated, exhausted, if you're feeling a little exhaustion from uh, the election, tired of it, worn out, get in line. Seems to be a problem. A lot of news stories about election exhaustion. Is it just the media tired of covering it every day? Probably. And it's I mean, we're not even just tired only of of the candidates. We're tired of the media. Hmm. They just keep bringing up the next thing, bringing up the next thing, bringing up the next thing. I guess this goes on until I guess until the all the people on Earth die. So what it is. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Should they stop? Yes. What should they do instead? Take they, a day off, just shut down all what? operations. Dancing with the stars, not getting as much attention as it needs. Not exactly media, it's entertainment. Exactly. It, will someone wake Jeff up? It's so embarrassing. Why does he do this? I think he'd get used to the early hours. <laughs> the schedule killing you, Jeff? Like we're, oh, can't it's like people up. show up, they're just unaware of what it means to go live <sighs> at 9 Eastern every morning. <laughs> this is work, people. We will uh, we will talk. I'm sure Trump in just a few moments and uh, Hillary as well. And are they burning out the millennials? They need the millennials to be engaged. No, they have Snapchat filters. People love those. Yeah, that's the way you're going to attract a millennial because just like a cat to a laser pointer. Mm. I mean, Hillary Clinton had her uh, Pokemon Go meetups in Ohio. Yeah. Those were huge success. Exactly what millennials really want. Right. And then the seriousness having, of the issues. Having what, she's 68? Mm-hmm. Try to have a 68-year-old woman try to talk about how exciting Pokemon Go is. <laughs> that was a little awkward when she did that. Yeah, that doesn't The Trump campaign fly. bought a Snapchat filter yesterday. So you could take a picture and then put yourself in there and it says. In, in that whole debate, they didn't talk a lot about health care. Which the millennials are caring about because they, right. they need it. And they didn't talk a lot about student debt. Sure. Didn't talk a lot about that. Right. Right. Well, I mean, there they, was a moderator asking questions. He didn't get to everything that he right. said. At the end, he said, there's things we haven't gotten to. Yeah. So. Well, the dilemma is those are the people they need to attract. Apparently, the millennials can swing the vote 8%. Mm. If no millennials turn out, if it's not a turnout for millennials, Donald Trump wins by three points. Oh, Yeah. Average turnout, Hillary Clinton wins by three. Don't you know? Incredible turnout, <laughs> Hillary Clinton wins by five. Wow. Liar! Liar! Yeah. Liar! Oh, she's mad. Such false. She's mad. So we'll get to all of that fun. Millennials, you got to know. You've got, uh, you got a huge game to play here. Um, so don't go to sleep on us yet. We need you to stay awake, uh, even though, of course, the only thing you do is Pokemon Go. We'll get to all of that fun. Plus, today we're going to be talking about how you can prevent lone wolf terrorism. Really? Oh. And we're not doing it in the United States very oh, well. Of course not. It's creating a sense of belonging for these people. Really? Yeah. So give them a hug? 
just at least let them speak their language at our to get their driver's license or whatever. Just simple oh, little answers like that. Really? We make it so complicated. Then they're ostracized. Then they just start writing, you know, the Middle East thing. Then they've got to go to Syria and get trained. We'll talk about it with a with an expert that's been researching uh, some answers they're finding actually in France that uh, could go a long way. So we'll get to all that fun. But first to Sadie Nielsen and the headline. Sadie, what's going on? The missile that downed Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 was fired from a Russian launcher in an area of Ukraine controlled by pro-Moscow rebels. A Dutch-led team of investigators and prosecutors concluded Wednesday. The surface-to-air missile hit Boeing 777 en route from Amsterdam to Malaysia, killing 298 people in July 2014, breaking it apart in midair and scattering wreckage over several miles of fields. More information about the investigation will be revealed over the next few days. The first presidential debate of 2016 election cycle was the most watched debate ever, with 80.9 million people tuning in to see Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton go head to head. Clinton and Trump's first presidential showdown topped the second most viewed debate in U.S. history between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan in 1980 by 300,000 viewers. Senate Democrats blocked a proposed government bill. Uh, spending bill Tuesday downing the proposal with a 55 to 45 vote that threatens to shut down the government if an agreement is not reached by the October 1st deadline. The resolution, backed by Republican leadership, would have funded the government through December 9th, but was rejected on the grounds that it did not give aid to Flint, Michigan, but did provide for flood victims in Louisiana, Maryland, and West Virginia. Democrats have said they don't oppose the flood aid, but it should not be included in the funding bill unless aid goes towards Flint's ongoing water crisis. And finally, yes. the presidential contest between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump keeps heating up, but an ice cream company in New York is looking to cool things off. The Ample Hills Creamery of New York has debuted two new election-themed flavors. Are you mm. ready for this? Yes. Madam President is made with sugar and spices and woman's rights and serves up chili pepper chocolate ice cream with chocolate chip cookies. And Trump fans can dig into a Make America Orange Again dessert. <laughs> The bright orange flavor incorporates orange marshmallow ice cream with brownie bricks. Um, and although the creamery usually avoids synthetic flavors, they said the shade is based on the hue of this particular candidate. Wow. Hmm. What, are the, uh, what are the brownie bits representing? That is up for your personal interpretation. So we get, we get an orange Trump and a s- sweet and spicy chocolate ice chocolate cream. Chocolate Hillary? Yep. Hmm. Okay. Right. Seems. You know, I'm actually going to New York in November. Yeah. So if I uh, happen to stop by the ice cream shop, (gasps) I will grab some and bring it back for you guys. Freeze it, bring it back to us. That would be fantastic. And get some cronuts while you're there. Yeah, absolutely. Legit cronuts. Like legit. Okay. Not the ones you got us. Not the the giant, delicious ones I brought you the other day. We don't want those. Right. Okay. For sure, I want you to step over bodies. For the Cronuts in New York. More than 50. More than 50 bodies. Thank you, Sadie Nielsen. Appreciate that. That um, I'm telling you, that ice cream thing, I guess it's just, you know, another way to get people in. But neither of those sounded very good. Not really. I think I'm just going to go with Rocky Road, which is apparently where our country is going as well. So as for the ratings... Yes. 84 million people. 84 million. What it did was the not number? Reach, it did not reach the 100 million mark that they oh. were hoping. And, nice try, media. Yeah. So, that's not, that, so that doesn't reach the top 20 of all time 
shows for ratings. Okay. Those are still like there's a match, Smash, there's yeah. a Cheers, finales, and then the rest are Super, Super Bowls. Bowls. As of 2016, top rated shows, Super Bowl mm-hmm. had 101.9. Wow. The first presidential debate, 84 million. Yeah. The Super Bowl post game show, okay. 70 million. And then it drops to 34 million watch Donald Trump's RNC acceptance speech. Then it's 34 million for the Academy wow. Awards. And then uh, sixth overall is Hillary Clinton's DNC acceptance speech at 33 million people. Hmm. So it did really, really well. It did. Which shows. It's the number two rated for the year. People are paying attention. Well, Second to sports, it's it's pretty awesome. Monday Night Football had their worst rating since like 1992 with mm. 8 million people watching. Yeah, and they're struggling anyway. You and wonder if they're, they're struggling just anyway. because of a is that just because of the election or I don't know. Huh. Who knows anyway. Uh interesting stuff. Okay, so uh it is by the way a very special day today. Uh September 28th is known as Ask a Stupid Question Day. So today is the day of all days that you get to ask the, a stupid question. Can I ask a question that's been on my mind? Yeah, sure. For the life of me, I can't understand why racial slurs are never slurred. Why are racial slurs not slurred? Well, that's a stupid question. That's Stop just that! stupid. Because you can, you, you can always understand a racial slur. Yeah. If it was truly slurred, you well, wouldn't understand it. Is it a racial slur if it was slurred? See, Terry Terry knows where I'm coming from with this. <laughs> it would just be just kind of incoherent. Maybe offensively incoherent, but incoherent. I thought yeah. we said I thought we said on this show there are no stupid questions. Well no, that one was pretty stupid. <laughs> that one was I like this music, by the way. Why? Just how many times can you get the word stupid in one song? <laughs> Apparently they're going to. Apparently Weird Al Yankovic can get it in about a million times. Stupid! There are no stupid questions, except today is Ask I, a Stupid Question Day. See, I always had that in school where the teacher is like, "There's no stupid questions. Every right. question is important." Then someone asks a question, and the teacher just stares at him. You're like, "What? Come on!" You what just the? said. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when you get to. Uh, Today's the day, too. You can just say whatever you want. I would clarify, slurs. are there stupid answers? And they would always say, yes, there is. Yeah. There's just, there is stupidity. It exists. Yeah, I mean, but this seems like a day maybe we just kind of wipe that slate clean and let everyone just express themselves without judgment. Apparently, um, as far as stupid comments, um, there's, a, there's now something that's haunting Donald about his... His diss to X Miss Universe. Yeah. And the problem is so the former Miss Universe uh, became a headline for being called Miss Piggy by Donald Trump, expressed surprise that her name emerged during this week's presidential debate. Hillary played it well. The re- I don't know if there was surprise because the second, uh, not the second, but right around the time Hillary Clinton mentioned her name. The Clinton campaign put up a pre-produced video yeah. interview with her. Right. So, I mean, it was all calculated. He, he fell into the trap, and it's the perfect hit because it's, you know, I think uh, a statistic I heard, like 80% of women have body image self-doubt, right? So yeah. all of a sudden, 
he brings up a Miss Piggy comment. Well, the story had come out before, and it was kind of like it was... 18 years I mean, old when this all yeah, went down. It was like it was anecdotal because it was sort of secondhand backstage sort of this may this happened but there was no and then all of a sudden Hillary Clinton has the woman, here's her name and here's a video. And it's like <laughs> yeah, oh that, she yeah, so he bait, she baited him right in. And, he and took a, the bait. As he as she was telling asking the or started asking the question, started kind of detailing the the story a little bit. He's like, "Where are you getting this story?" Mm-hmm. How is this even true? And then she uh, he says the name, and I'm oh, Donald. This is where we have been um, as we've been sitting around the table for the last two weeks preparing for this debate. <laughs> we've been talking about this story, and we have a video that will then be playing two days later, and we'll pretty much sink your candidacy. And the story, uh, like apparently, she gained some weight. Yeah. And he went on Fox he News said, yesterday uh, he, morning. He said she gained a lot of weight. He doubled down saying that it was a real problem. <sighs> he brought the media in to watch her do sit-ups after she had won the Miss Universe pageant mm-hmm. to show that she was getting into shape. You know, So it was kind of like bring the media in, fat shame her some more. Yeah. And then <laughs> her name is Alicia Machado. She will be a U.S. citizen. She was from Venezuela. She'll be a U.S. citizen this November. And she said, you better believe I'm going to be voting. Well, there's one. I have a feeling it won't be for the Donald. The interesting thing, uh, she apparently gained 55 pounds within a nine-month period. Mm-hmm. And then he blew up about it. And now he's calling her crazy for a variety of other reasons. And She was interviewed multiple times yesterday. Mm. Anyway, not so. probably a good thing to do for millennials no. who are very compassionate and uh, – also not for women. So who exactly is Donald going for? The fame-shaming people that love to, I guess, men who yeah. love to hurt people's feelings. That's who's left, men, right? And that's who he's he's polling in a positive way with. What do you do? What do you do? Uh, many are saying um, that, uh, you know, this could have gotten uglier because Donald, really, he could have, he, he could have, said a lot of things to seriously embarrass Hillary Clinton. For 90 minutes, I watched her very carefully. And I was also holding back. I didn't want to do anything to embarrass her. But I watched her and she was stuck in the past. For 90 minutes, on issue after issue, Hillary Clinton defended the terrible status quo. We're going to get rid of that crooked woman. She's a crooked woman. She's a very, very dishonest woman. Okay. Thoughts? Um, <laughs> that was his campaign rally yesterday. I just think we ought to let Donald speak for himself. Okay. Um, Passing out there. So anybody that thinks, though, that he Donald is, isn't a feminist, he's a feminist. He's a feminist. Donald Trump a feminist? Donald Trump is a feminist. No, Donald Trump. Are you sure? I am absolutely sure. I know Donald Trump from 28 years. The women in his organization are paid the same as men. The president of his company is a woman. His daughter. He is the first person to ever put a woman in charge of a construction company in New York. Daughter. Daughter. Donald Trump (laughs) treats people fairly. And Donald Trump is an honest person. And he was too reserved and too gentlemanly at the end to say what I would have said about Hillary Clinton's attack on him about not being a feminist. Hmm. Too much of a gentleman. Yeah. 
too much of a gentleman. So do you think it's a, a smart tactic to try to show your your feminist strengths by going after your opponent's husband's infidelities? No. Okay. Just I don't I don't know the well, logic. Well, and but. when you live in glass houses, just you know keep the rocks. So I'm outside. just waiting for him to try, and then Hillary says, "What about your I infidelities?" Know. Because they're well publicized and documented. Well, and the funny thing is, we nobody wins in this any of these discussions no, because it's a race to the bottom. We, we pretty much have got that you can't necessarily trust either of what they say fully. Neither one will actually ever really fully apologize no. until dragged out and made to do it. Right. Um, and I guess we're just supposed to all jump on board and like this. I guess. It's really awkward. It's really awkward. Ah. Okay, so we're going to change the subject to, to, uh, to eliminate some of the awkwardness of life. What if, we, what if we could figure out a way to prevent some of these lone wolf terrorist acts? If you remember in um, France... Some of the crazy things that have been going on there, the guy that drove the truck through the celebration, killing about 85 people, the Charlie Hebdo shootings that ended up killing a bunch as well. Lone acts uh, from just one or two people at a time. We're going to uh, be talking today with an expert about how we could prevent some of these, according to some of the latest research. It might be we're bringing in people into our countries and we're not even helping them feel like they belong. And uh, they're finding that that could be causing some of the uh, these problems. Stick with us. We're talking lone wolf, how to prevent it when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Terrorism or the use of violence and intimidation for political aims is one of the top-ranking issues millennials put on the agenda for the next president of the United States. Most people believe that terrorism needs to be another country going against our own country. However, terrorism can, in fact, be homegrown right here in America. We have the security structures to stop organized terror attacks, but are we prepared to stop lone wolf terrorist attacks? Here to speak to us today is Ph.D. Robert Barsky, a professor of English and French literature and a professor of law at Vanderbilt University. And we appreciate uh, you, Dr. Barsky, being with us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, you, you've you done some interesting research um, in Canada and other places as well about um, about refugees and the refugees coming into these countries and their, uh, you know, their ability to, I guess, become assimilated and feel like they actually belong. Um, talk about that. Talk about what you've learned uh, working with this these refugee communities. It's a fascinating realm when you can put together the realms of literature and, in this case, migration and, and law. Uh, we were approached when I was doing research in Quebec uh, by the government who has indicated that despite all of their efforts to understand the actual experiences of migrants living in the in the province and in the country, that they felt as though they had no real tangible sense of what their day-to-day existence was like. Uh, it turns out that in, in Canada, there are subventions offered to uh, migrants uh, to new new arrivals and so forth to publish books in many cases literature so i thought it interesting to turn to the works that had been written by immigrants to the province 
to see what it is that they were talking about and see if we might have um, more interesting insight into the kind of day-to-day life for them. Hmm. And of course, literature made good sense because as well, as we hear every day, uh, so many descriptions of the people who live in our country are politically motivated, ideologically tinged, and so forth. We don't have a, a strong sense of, of the, the lives of, of the, the people who are amongst us. So in, in looking at the literature, uh, not surprisingly, a lot of the stories told are stories about border crossing. What did it mean to leave the home country? How heart-wrenching and, and difficult was that? And what happened when the, the, the narrator or the characters arrived in this new country? What, did it, what was day-to-day existence like? And I focused on those moments when exchanges occurred. So let's say the, 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 the narrator or the, or the character receives the key to his new apartment. Hmm. and is able to, to go in, or the, the the character meets somebody from the host country and they develop an amorous relationship. Those moments when things are either given or received, to see what the effect was upon the person in terms of his or her ability to then cope with the new society. So, I, And this, this makes good sense, because no matter how perceptions are drawn about what it's like to move to the United States or move to Canada or move to Europe. The fact is that it's always traumatizing. It's always difficult. There are new languages, there are new uh, forms to fill out, there's new, uh, a new culture to try to understand. And even in the best of circumstances, it poses really significant problems. Of course, a lot of them are, can be alleviated if there is a little bit more, uh, uh, if there's more funds. But generally speaking, it's just, it's, it's hard. You don't have friends, you don't have family. So I looked into this and began to understand that there were certain things that we can do that tangibly make the life of those people who are entering into our country uh, easier, to make the process of assimilating uh, smoother. And I think that this is a very promising area to be looking at right now because the reality is we have 12 to 15 uh, undocumented migrants living in the United States. We have an international obligation to accept uh, asylum seekers and refugees. There is this ongoing crisis uh, in Syria that is not going away anytime soon. And we can't just close our... First of all, the borders, they they cannot be closed. They can't be closed uh, according to international law or obligations. And the fact is that they aren't. Uh, There are already millions and millions of people in our country. So rather than waving our sabers and talking about fences and walls and so forth, we need to build the kinds of of bridges that allow for the population who is already here on the ground to feel that they have a stake in civil society. And that's that's where I think is the center. Oh, it's it's a I think it's a fascinating uh, way to get to this. I mean, going through their literature, hearing their stories, I guess sensing their lack of belonging at times and, and just feeling not quite integrated. Um, but, but then we, you know, we hear about it in the United States with some of the rhetoric from the political candidates, but we also were hearing it also in France where there's a lot of uh, hullabaloo about the burkinis and the you know the dress standards what's allowable what's not allowable at the beaches we start to see laws being changed um to i guess to discriminate against certain groups of people 
in the yeah. end, though, this this is this becomes ostracizing, right? This this puts them on the outside, which could create the conditions for the lone wolf. The that's exactly that correct. person that has to reach back to their old, maybe you know, to other groups that would would accept them in. That's exactly right, and in fact, the phenomenon would relate to the lone wolf, but it also relates more generally, and I think for reasons that are that are obvious, if. Uh, a migrant is made to feel unwelcome. And if he or she feels that to be examined in public by an official is likely to lead to a confrontational situation, then he or she is not likely to want to participate in civil society. So Mm -hmm. we can take an extreme example. Let's say an undocumented person is living in an apartment building and there are screens next door the, temp- the obvious move would be to pick up the telephone and call and say, I'm so-and-so and I live here and there are, there's somebody who's being attacked next door and can you send the police? The reality is that when the uh, people, the uh, individuals like that are demonized, if they're considered, you know, as they've been described in the political culture as rapists or murderers mm-hmm. or drug dealers or whatever else, then they will feel, and I hate to say this, but rightly so they they will feel that when uh, in the face of an of an officer rather than being able to contribute they might be asked for papers they might be checked they might be accused so they might turn over in their bed put the pillow over their ears and try and go back to sleep mm. rather than than helping we are creating situations of antagonism and and nobody benefits from this certainly law enforcement uh, dislikes this approach. And in fact, I I did a book recently on undocumented immigrants and uh, was looking into some of the policies of police officers in the country. And there are a number of police chiefs who specifically said, you are not immigration officers. You are policemen. You're there to fight crime. You should not be checking people's status. You should be, um, you know, enforcing the laws that you that you can and should enforce, mm. and that's all. There's a there's a logic to that. So that this, the the people in the in the the society that we're talking about feel a sense of of buy-in. Now, what happens? So that that's a, a general statement, and I think it, it applies. And it's just logic, it's just right. pure logic no, right. that that, uh, that dictates that. Now, in the lone wolf example, let's let's say you have. So, so I think it's most likely that people will just try and. And, and stay away from authority. But if, for example, the, the, the person has read about being demonized, has heard from even political candidates for office uh, as high as the president, mm. that they are the problem, that they're some kind of a cancer that needs to be weeded out, then, and, and if they feel that they have made a, a, a horrible and difficult trek, if they have made a lot of sacrifices, they've left a country, in many cases against their own will, and then they feel that somehow the society that is supposed to welcome them by you know all the international agreements is instead demonizing them and considering them a risk, then there is, of course, a small number of people who have violent tendencies and, and horrible thoughts, and my sense is that that can activate it. Mm. So I, I believe that we need to talk about prevention and not just reaction. Reaction is fences. Reaction is... You know, uh, arresting people and, and criminalizing them and deporting them. Right. Reaction is searching them and doing stops and searches and so forth. Reactions are, are targeting people 
of a particular uh, skin color or religion and pulling them over and, 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 mm. and questioning them. That's, that's a very vicious way to deal with people who are on the territory. And, and it's, I don't think that viciousness works. No, and, and it, seem, yeah, it seems to – what it does is it would drive them underground. And even exactly. if they're underground and friendly and kind, they're still seen as antisocial and they're still seemingly a threat. But then what I'm seeing too, Robert, is there's a lot of – second generation. So this isn't a one generation problem. If the first generation has to go underground to kind of hide and get through this, the second generation becomes probably even more ostracized and more less integrated into society, which means less likely to maybe have some of the basic benefits like a driver's license and other issues and employment opportunities and better educational opportunities. It's such an important point, the the generational question. It it is often the case that the first generation cannot fully integrate, if only because of the language barrier. So um, it it is very difficult for you know any any class of migrant to integrate in the first generation. And a lot of effort has to be placed, as you're suggesting, upon the second generation. Partly because the second generation can feel as though it needs to pay the debts of the first generation. That is, if uh, somebody's father or mother was maltreated, uh, not integrated, you know, you have these kind of horrific stories of being uh, demonized and so forth. Then, the, as as the the person grows up, he or she may you know talk to talk to the wrong people, get hardened, and say. Mm. You know, this country's always been been bad to my family, and now here they are. They don't want to offer me health care, even though I'm here. They don't. They, I'm, I'm not allowed to uh, participate in certain types of uh, activities to which all members of society are normally um, uh, welcomed, and so forth. So this can lead, you know. And again, there's there's no way to predict who the, who that might affect. Right. You know, we see this from all of the shootings and all of the the murders and killings. We, 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 this, there's no reliable way to say this person is about to crack. But there, I think that there is a reliable way to say, what, how can we make this place a, a kinder, gentler, more open kind of society that people then feel close to? If, if, you know, I, and again, here's just common sense. If in your workplace you're treated well, if you are respected, if you feel as though you're the space that you're given is, is good and your uniform is comfortable and whatever else, you feel as though the, the, the company has your back. Yeah. And, and that's really, what about when the country has your back? You know, when you feel, oh, this is my public square, this is my bus, this yeah, is my that, metro. And now you that's belong. Amazing. Yeah, now you are in. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Robert F. Barsky, um, uh, the author of many books. One book is Hatched, which is... Um, a wonderful book that shares three stories, fictional uh, stories about friends that illegally uh, stimulate the American economy. He also has written a book about undocumented immigrants in the era of arbitrary law. Folks, it matters. It matters how we go about uh, improving the lives of those that are migrating to the United States. It may, uh, it may save lives. Stick with us. We'll be right back, continuing the discussion. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Joining us on the phone is Robert F. Barsky, Ph.D. He is a, uh, a professor of English and French literature and a professor of law at Vanderbilt University. And today he's talking with us about an article we found in theconversation.com uh, that he wrote called uh, Want to Prevent Lone Wolf Terrorism? Promote a Sense of Belonging. And Dr. Barsky, thank you so much. This is... Uh, it just seems like good old-fashioned common sense. You treat people Absolutely. better, you love people, you let them help them belong and have a sense of belonging, and everyone's safer. Totally. And you, I think it, your, your point uh, draws attention to the idea of empathy. One of the difficulties and joys of traveling is you go to a place and you land there and you think, how am I going to get to the center of the city how am I going to find my hotel? What if I don't speak the language? Mm. What, what are the kinds of services that are available to me? And, you know, uh, tourists tend to demand a lot of the country. And, you know, if you happen to fall off your bicycle or your scooter, you, you, it's almost like you expect somebody's going to come and pick you up and bring you to the hospital and, right. and patch you up and so forth. And we see this even amongst those people who are against, uh, you know, high taxes and, and against socialized medical care and so forth, somehow when they go somewhere else and they realize what it is to be a, a victim of circumstance, I've seen so many examples of people just kind of expecting that the host country will take care of them. Well, empathy means put yourself into the shoes of somebody who has made a, a genuine claim for, let's say, refugee status, somebody who has whose village or city has been destroyed whose family has been uh, you know, pushed out or killed, you know, they, they arrive here. What, what is the point of demonizing them and of denying mm. them basic uh, services? Uh, it, in fact, we should be investing in those people who have come to our territory and investing in their happiness, investing in their safety, investing in their sense of belonging and buy-in. And it, studies have shown that we did at the National Institute for Scientific Research that people who have come to uh, the country, in that case Canada, uh, with nothing but have been helped and so forth, over a 10-year period, they became better integrated into the society by all measures, including they had hired more people, they had Hmm. worked more, they they had educated their children to higher levels and so forth, than those people who came in with a lot of money. So there's also this kind of bias that says, well, we, we don't want those, we don't want the, the, the outcasts. We don't want those people who are going to jump the queues. We don't want, well, it's nonsense. Um, these, if, if people are, you know, fleeing for reasons that are demonstrably difficult, then, yeah. and, we, and they're offered a good life, their investment in the country becomes gigantic. But I, I must say also that it's not just those people. Uh, we all, many people love to travel um, and we we always talk about those people who are coming in. Well, what about those uh, those people who are going out? What about the value that would be added to our own lives if we too could travel freely, integrate mm. uh, uh, easily to Mexico or to you know a- any country uh, that we could go go to by land from 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 the United States, or in fact anywhere? Why does it have to be the case that the the, the model that we immediately jump to is is border control and fences and so forth. These people are going to move around anyway, whether it be for adventure or for flight. And rather than making the process even scarier and more difficult than it is, to to build in the, the certainty that if you 
do arrive on a, on a on a territory that you will be treated like like a like a human being. We would want that for our children. If our children travel to a, a foreign country, why shouldn't we offer that? And for our citizens, for people who we hope will eventually become citizens, this kind of I could I see you could call it an investment. It's an investment in the future, and it's an investment in our own safety. And it's just being a member of the human race, right? I mean, this is like Absolutely. basic humanity. Absolutely. And but then we and politicize I, it, don't we? Then we, yeah. It's almost. It seems like there's a lot of fear, but yep. uh, and but it seems like the fear could be allayed by like what you're saying by empathy, by understanding. I've lived in a foreign country for two years and. It changed me. I can't. Absolutely. I can't think of. Uh, I, I think of people so differently because I've seen stuff you would never see in the United States. Absolutely. And so, you know, how do you gain access to those stories of the kinds of stories that, that you had during those two years? It turns out that literature is a tremendous source. Hmm. You know, you, we see specials, uh, uh, you know, documentaries, and we read newspapers and so forth. But the the advantage of reading literature written by people who are not uh, from the country of, uh, of origin, uh, uh, the host country, is that they offer us insights that only literature can offer because literature, like dreams, is, uh, is you know, it's filled with stories. It's a place of story. You mentioned I just ri- I've just written this novel. Mm. I myself am, am not, uh, uh, I was born in Quebec and raised in, in Canada and have only recently become an American citizen, and now I've written this novel, uh, Hatched, about this this restaurant in New York City uh, in which the uh, this this plan is hatched and publishing it in this country and situating the story in New York City is also a kind of form of 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 telling telling my story telling yeah. a story uh and I think the process of of telling this story reminded me you know I've been teaching literature for 25 years but the joy of being able to to truly speak to my imagination and to give the characters free reign made it such that I could say things and think about things in this novel that I couldn't say and think about in the other books, in the other you know non-fictional books that I've written. So Hatch becomes an adventure and it becomes a, a, a playful story and so forth. And I think that inside of it is you know is a lot of knowledge that I couldn't possibly convey otherwise. Mm. The great joy, as, as you know, of reading of reading novels, of seeing films, it it is. You know, a, a kind of a form of escapism and create, you know, you create your own world. But in regards to what we're talking about, it's also a place where you can divulge the kinds of information that courtrooms don't allow, that journalists don't allow, that our ordinary life don't allow. And, and, and I think that another interesting point in this regard is that no matter how against uh, refugees or migrants or undocumented people uh, one individual or another might be. The one exception is always that person that they know. You know, exactly. people who say, I'm so against undocumented migrants. You know, these people are just illegal and they're acting illegally and so forth. Well, except for my, except for the guy who cuts my grass. I mean, you wouldn't believe <laughs> his stories. You know, he's a, and you would, oh my goodness, the flight and the risk that he took and, to, and now he's got this wonderful home and these three terrific kids and, you know, I mean, he may be undocumented, but let me tell you, he's he's an ex- so true huh? individual. Which right? is why we need it's, to get in to know the stories. I mean, and that's absolutely. why it's it's important what these politicians are doing too, because they're telling a story, they're setting a narrative, and people can believe the narrative without knowing the real stories. 
Absolutely. And, you know, if the narratives that they tell are narratives of hardened, hardened, uh, you know, efforts to to deny people basic rights, so the stories they're telling are stories of, of, you know, rapists and killers and so forth, who all just happen to, to be foreigners and so forth. And if those stories are the blatant lies that they are, then you you also need a way to dismount them. Uh, mm. th- this is a dangerous political discourse that's being played here, and it's being played for votes. Uh, and the, what's, what's not being measured is the long-term effect. I think that anybody listening to this type of really hateful uh, rhetoric who happens to be uh, Muslim or an undocumented person might feel that this is a very antagonistic place, which... You know, I, I really like to think that it's not, mm. and it, and and it's 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 pandering to the to the to the really a, a very dangerous notion. Can you do both, uh, Doctor Barsky? Because it seems like some people are still going to say, "Yeah, but there, you need borders for safety for some at some point." And yet, mm-hmm. what you're what you bring up too in your article, I think, is brilliant. That policymakers can do a lot of other things to still. Make sure that we um, that we are helping these communities belong and create a sense of belonging and an identity. And so, how do we balance kind of the safety issue and the the belonging issue? Well, again, I think that if we focus upon uh, creating the circumstances where people are going to feel safe and, and and reassured and comfortable and so forth, then the law enforcement, which needs to track down those people who are actually engaged in dangerous activities can focus their attention appropriately. That we do gigantic roundups of, of undocumented people from communities who have long connections to our community is is a unwieldy waste of resources. Mm-hmm. And when you get down to the details that we spend untold billions of dollars on border enforcement, border control, and then when we catch uh, an undocumented person decide to throw the book at him or her, they they then uh, you know they're they're arrested, they're they're thrown in jail if they have a prior conviction for marijuana or something they right. serve it, and then there's a deportation hearing and deportation. All of this you know talk about wasting taxpayers' money. All of this not only uh, is an enormous burden uh, upon uh, our our society, but it takes resources away from actual crime fighting. So we'd be so much better off uh, allowing for a free or freer movement of people across the borders, understanding that workers need to move around uh, in search of work both ways, not just people coming here, but mm-hmm. us going to other places, and then actually spend the money that we need to spend to track down people who are actually engaged in dangerous actions. That would be a yeah. much safer society. And it's then been... you would have the participation of those people who have been properly integrated, and, and they're more likely to say, hey, I saw something that I think is, is uh, uh, dangerous. I'm going to go and report it to the authority without fearing that I'm going to be demonized. Myself. I love that. And then uh, that's, to me, such a powerful way to, to spend the money. Also spend the rest of the money on making sure that they can get a driver's license, so they can get a job, get access to social services, make sure that their languages, that that the uh, the documents and paperwork are in their languages so that they don't have to hide. Ah. Dr. Uh, Robert Barsky, thank you so much. Great, great insights, I think, for all of us. Just to get that spirit of empathy back, it, it doesn't, 
you know, there's still safety issues. And yet it doesn't eliminate the fact that we can be good, honest, decent people and love these people that uh, were forced out of their own communities. The book is Hatched. And you can find it uh, pretty much anywhere. Go to go, just look up Robert F. Barsky and Hatched, and you can read that uh, that wonderful book about um, the integration of humans in this human world we're all living with. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Come back to a quick coach's corner. Wrap up hour number one, creating a sense of belonging. Stick with us. We'll be back. coach would have put me in fourth quarter we'd have been state champions because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back hey uh isn't that true you know you got to get rid of all of these illegal immigrants coming into the country they're just dangerous and then all of a sudden you think of the one that you know your neighbor the friend that one that cut your lawn or you know, your child goes to school with, eh, they're different. Yeah, they're not. I mean, you got to get rid of all the other illegal immigrants. Isn't it ironic that once you start to know the story of these people, um, it changes you. It, you empathize more. Um, we are, you know, creatures of habit. And a lot of times our fears are going to operate whether we think about them or not. We a lot of us get into what we call I call behavior scripts where we we just act out of the script. Right. We know we're supposed to be afraid of certain people and you just naturally are afraid of those people until you learn the story and you understand the story. We uh, I went to a speech the other day where um, a church group is supporting some of these um, these immigrants that are coming from Syria and they're they're. They've had a hard life, right? They've come through a war-torn country, and as they arrive, all they need, amazingly, is this sense of belonging, a sense of community. They, um, these, these church members are putting together buckets of beans and rice with the idea that once the bucket gets half empty, um, the, they want to be able to help these immigrants be able to fill the bucket, already have a job, already have some way to fill their own bucket with beans and rice and make them more independent. But how about you? Do you, when you sit there and think of immigration and people coming from Syria and some of those uh, Middle Eastern countries, do you immediately get you know, scared? Do you get turned off? Do you immediately think they're here to kill everybody? Anyway... It's a, it's a, it's all about humans, folks. We're all in this race together, and yet we create these funny divisions, and those divisions don't exist except for in our minds and our countries, of course, and our politics create the divisions as well. So make sure that you're not one that's dividing and creating divisions for division's sake. Just draw bigger circles. Let more people in. And then if we're going to let them in, we may as well help them belong, or you will pay later. You'll have bigger problems. Belonging. It's just a human basic need. Nobody invented it. We all just need it. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show in the can. We'll be back. Stick with us. More interesting ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll be back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Hello and top of the morning to you. Happy Wednesday. Is it Wednesday? Terry says yes. Terry apparently has delivered a baby to be delivered Friday. What? You've uh, ordered up a baby. Well. And the stork will be dropping it off on Friday. It could come tonight. It could come tomorrow. If it's not delivered within 30 minutes. I think you get a free cheese, uh, um, cheesy bread. Or cronut. If you, <laughs> the baby's not delivered on time. Uh, great to show for you today. We will be talking with John Cotter, uh, past uh, emeritus professor at Harvard's Business School. You're not going to want to miss that. And he's going to be walking us through the rise and fall of organizations. What stops a company, an organization from surviving? Because think of it. A lot of you just have your own businesses. You may be like, well, I don't have a big company. No, you don't. You just have a little company. But if you want it to last, there's certain tricks of the trade. By the way, one of those tricks would be learning. You got to be a learning organization. Something I've been pushing on this team a lot. You got to learn. What are you saying? Nothing. Hey, it's also, um, it's a really fun day today. It's Ask a Stupid Question Day. When I'm flying in a plane or I'm on the street, there's a lot of things, people that I like to meet. They shake my hand and never ask my this name. This is called Biff's Question Song. Questions that are always the same. Hey, what's Michael J. Fox like? He's nice. This is Biff what's from Michael Back to J. the Future. Fox like? Nice guy. What's Michael J. Fox like? He's an alien. Stop asking me the question. That's Biff Henderson. Is that his name, Biff Henderson? No, that was David Letterman's guy. I think no. it's Biff Loman. Biff Loman? Interesting. Today's the day you can get away with asking any stupid question. Well, hey, I, I've got a really important question this time. Is it better than your last question? Yeah, and I, it's really been on my mind a lot. So I was driving to my car the other day, and I thought about this question that was just eating at me. Oh, boy. If you're traveling at the speed of light, yeah. and then you turned your lights on, would they do anything? I'll let Terry answer that. Stop it! True. True. That's actually a Stephen Wright bit. That's actually a really good question. It's not even stupid, is it? That's like, there's got to be some science behind that. That would, like, explode your mind. It's so good. This Biff just keeps asking questions. Well, today, any question you want to ask, go ahead and ask it. Now, remember... Just because we enlightened you about today's Ask a Stupid Question Day doesn't mean your friends, when you're asking those questions, will remember what day it is. So they may look at you. They may think you're crazy. Just give them a hug. Say, hey, Dr. Matt said I could ask any question I wanted today. Isn't it also hug a stupid question asker? Day. Day. Yes, it is. A lot going on on this day. Today, we, uh, we've got a lot to talk about um, we are we are intentionally this hour not I guess going to talk about Donald Trump. Challenge accepted. 
There's just so much in the news about him today. But we've got other stuff to get into. Um, just accidents. You won't believe. Uh, uh, if if you could, if you had a car accident or a truck accident, no one w- where no one was harmed, and you could just sit there and have to wait in line for hours. What smell would you want to emanate from the accident scene? Hmm. Like, what smell could you sit there and just smell all day long? New shoes. <laughs> really? Or new books. New car smell? Or gasoline, I no. am afraid to say. Fresh, no. fresh cookies? Fresh cookies. No, you're all wrong. The answer? Oh, what, Sadie? Lilies? Flowers? Like a, like a, no. like a lily truck turned over and... The, hey, do you smell those lilies wafting? Um, it's bacon. So a bake, a trailer filled with bacon rolled over, caught on fire. No! What a waste! Mm-hmm. What about bacon-flavored cotton candy? Ugh. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll get to all that exciting news. Plus, a new feature um, where we used to do the coach a con thing, where I tried to coach the cons. Mm-hmm. But we actually found a real con. That oh, is nice. going to advise, give advice to other cons. It's great. And uh, we'll introduce that um, that new reporter, I guess we'll call him, that new helper. Specialist? Specialist. Yeah, specialist. We'll get to all of that, but first to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Sadie, what's going on? The Arizona Republic, which has never endorsed a Democrat since the publication began in 1890, backed Hillary Clinton in this election, continuing a trend with many other major newspapers that typically back Republicans and are breaking out because of the trend of Donald Trump. The Republicans said, uh, or sorry, the Republic said the 2016 Republican candidate is not conservative and he is not qualified. Clinton has the temperament and experience to be president. Donald Trump does not. The U.S. State Department announced on Tuesday that it would be providing an additional $364 million in humanitarian aid to Syria for citizens embroiled in the country's civil war. Overall, that would mean that the U.S. has spent some $5.9 billion in assistance to Syria. The money will help both those in Syria and Syrians who have fled the country during those year-long crises. Wells Fargo and company said that it plans to take on $41 million in compensation from the chairman and chief executive due to the bank sales tactic scandal. It is the first time that a major U.S. financial institution has made made its top executive give back earnings since the financial crisis. The House Financial Services Committee will hold a hearing on Thursday pertaining to the company's actions. And finally, a man... Recently booked a flight for him and for his creepy five-foot-tall doll. What? Yes. While the staff and the passenger next to the man in the story were unhappy that the man had booked a seat for his doll, a Thai airline earlier this year announced that children angels, life-size dolls popular in Thailand, were allowed to fly as passengers. The woman sitting next to the man tweeted, Apparently the TSA was frantically trying to match the name and the birth rate until he provided... Uh, he provided until they realized dot 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 it's not a real person <laughs> with pictures of the horror movie worthy doll. This would be a carry on luggage sort of situation. Is it? <sighs> so it's he literally sat the doll next to him, strapped it in life size doll, life size doll, and there's, this. There's pictures. Yes. On, on Twitter, we'll Facebook. Put, we'll put it on our Twitter page. Yes. And um, it was awful. What is it like a? Is it like a moral support doll? I, some, some, because the scary thing now is there are dolls that people are dating. 
Yes. Well, no, in, in, in Asia, there are several countries that are concerned yeah. about birth rates. Right, they're yeah. falling. Well, because people and are people, in love with dolls. Well, people aren't going out and trying to. Uh, they're working all the time. They're 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 playing. They're not trying to develop relationships that way. And so these dolls are a way for them to, I guess, have some sort of yeah. care for something, but not have to worry about it being another human and deal with that aspect of it. <laughs> if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah. My name is Hey, will somebody tell that talking Tina to shut up? But in a sense, it might just be a support doll. Yeah. As we have support animals. Did he have to buy a ticket for the doll? It took up a seat. It's It's an expensive hobby. They're in the seat. The bad thing is, like, have you ever just, you know, left your laptop in your car, but you don't want to leave it in the seat, so you got to put it in the trunk? So what happens when you don't want to just have some doll sitting in the car so everyone's looking at your car then you take your doll out and you're shoving your doll into the trunk and everyone's like hey well people what are, are you doing with that lady people are doing that but then they try to go into the carpool lane and then the police <laughs> pull them over for trying to you know pull a fast one holy cow what's happening to this world well uh let me just tell you folks i it's getting scary the, the scariest news we received today isn't about the doll. It's about a tractor trailer carrying bacon. Caught fire and burned on Interstate 68 in Cumberland, Maryland. Mm, there it goes. Sizzle. Oh, I love the smell of bacon in the morning. The truck was loaded with a variety of pork products, including ribs. Oh. We'd rather have something like that than a hazardous material, a firefighter said. You know, the brakes get hot, catch on fire, it spreads into the trailer, bada-boom, bada-bing, you got yourself the Grand Slam breakfast. But then you have sort of the debris of the truck, the tires probably caught on fire, so that kind of smells mixed with the bacon. I wonder if the bacon overpowered. I think bacon always overpowered. This story was written in a very odd way because it didn't mention the bacon until the last line. Really? How many people did they feed with this Grand Slam breakfast? Zero. It was on the interstate. (laughs) <laughs> That'd be funny. A long line of people with Come a plate it. and a fork. Well, just all, those, all those people are waiting in traffic. Yeah. You just Wouldn't that smell it up, good? Get it out to the people. Oh. What about, and we talked about this briefly, the Texas State Fair has bacon-flavored cotton candy. Yuck. Comes from a company called Lester's Fixins. <laughs> And their slogan is, y'all get your fixins. Yeah. Right? That's a catchy slogan. They also sell uh, all kinds of foods, including sodas with flavors as peanut butter and jelly, mm. buffalo wings, sweet corn. This is all soda, by the way. Okay. Uh, ranch dressing. Think about that. Ranch dressing flavored soda. Yeah? E- no? no. And, of course, bacon. Bacon. The cotton candy made with real smoky bacon in an attempt at a savory take on the carnival treat. <sighs> Sounds gross. I'm t- Sounds gross. And the, the video that went with it showed people, like, t- t- you know, they pull it out of the bag and it's a solid piece. It wasn't fluffy. It's just, it was, yeah, it was just a solid kind of bacon. And they dropped it. It was like thunk. All the nitrates. Come on. You know they would still eat it. They did. They tried it. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it tastes yeah, like bacon. Of course you're going to eat it. Hey, um, another story about people painting dogs. This happened in a break-in in Massachusetts. A man breaks into a home. Um, and apparently while he had broken into the home, he was trying to, you know, find stuff to steal. But then he decided to paint the family dog purple. Hmm. He had time to paint the dog purple. Why not red? I don't know. Why purple? And my, my, maybe that was just the only paint available. Well, what kind of paint did he use? I don't know. 
Probably not the best paint on earth. He better have used Wilson Stevens paint. One of our great sponsors. One of our great sponsors. Wilson. And by the way, paint ready for painting animals. It's, it's An- animal it's friendly. It's animal friendly. Okay. Um, but this guy, that's, that's bad enough. But uh, as police were investigating, they were called to a home nearby for a report of a breaking and entering. And as they responded, they, they ended up uh, finding this guy, and he had purple paint all over him. So they just figured he was the guy because He must paint. be the culprit. Interesting. That's good police work. Yeah. They, you know, great, great police work. <laughs> Reagan uh, had paint on his pants, oh. and uh, when they found the dog, bada boom, bada bing. They knew. They had him. And so when we read the story, we thought, you know, these cons, mm. they're not getting any smarter. So we were going to do a Coach the Con segment. And then it dawned on me that I'm not a con, but I've been coaching them for years. You're not, you're not coming from a place of experience. No, yeah. I, I personally wouldn't have painted the dog. But like you deal with married couples. Uh-huh. You're married. I would have painted the couple. Yeah, right. No, don't get me wrong. Or their doll. But uh, Jeff brought up a really good point. Why don't you get a real criminal, a real con man, hmm. to coach the con? And I didn't know one, but Jeff did. Yeah, I lived in Russia for two years, and uh, we'd visit this guy from time to time. Was a mafia guy. Hmm. Um, he still sounds like he's a bit hardened. Does he? Um, but he's actually a nice guy he's with changed. great advice. Yeah. His name is Maxim. Maxim? Maxim. And like the magazine? Maxim Maximov. Maximo? Maxim Max- Maximov. Close enough. Okay. Yeah. And he's he's going to now coach the con? Yeah. Okay. Now it's time for Maxim, Maxim, most Maxim. Здравствуйте, меня зовут Maxim Maximov. Hello, my name is Maxim Maximov. I may be inmate in Russian Gulag, but I am sincerely wanting to give back to community. I do this by answering letters from fellow inmates and help them to be reformed and quality individuals. Today's letter from inmate number 247-623, he says to me, Police arrest me for breaking into house and painting dog purple. They catch me because I have paint on pants. Why they catch me? Well, Tavarish, here are three tips to help you when or if you ever get out. Number one, when fail to plan, plan to fail. Are you there to rob home or paint dog? Please, stick to task until it stick to you. Number two, when you not take care of Mother Nature, she not take care of you. Type of paint you use is very bad for environment. When painting dog, make sure to use Wilson Stevens paint, which contain all natural ingredients. And lastly, number three, if you can imagine it, you can achieve it. Or to put this way, it is not lie, if you believe it. When police show up, you do not have convincing argument for paint on pants. I once convinced police blood on hands was in fact sauce of spaghetti. It all start in mind. That sound mean time to go. Please join us for the next episode of Maxim Maximov's Maxims. До свидания.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the rise and fall of major corporations is something we hear about in the news quite frequently. Do you remember some of these names? Eastern Airlines, Lionel Corporation, RCA. They've all but vanished from Wall Street. So what happened to them? What led to their complete separation from the modern business world? Joining us on the phone is Dr. John Cotter, an award-winning business and management thought leader. He's here with us this morning to discuss his book, uh, That's Not How We Do It Here, a story about how organizations rise and fall and can rise again. And to teach us about this success, we welcome you, Dr. John Carter. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. We love um, learning and uh, to to be able to learn from you and your great work. You've been at studying businesses, whether as a professor or a, at Harvard or a New York Times bestselling author for years. What What's the key? I mean, the, the, some organizations seem to be able to hold it off and, and make it work and continue to stay afloat while others just disintegrate. Well, um, there, I mean, there are lots of reasons, but one of the great challenges in life for individuals uh, as well as organizations is if you get the slightest bit uh, um, successful and get comfortable, you become complacent. Mm. Um, and as long as you've uh, set yourself up either in a job or for a company in an industry where you can, uh, you know, do pretty well, it is amazing how much uh, that complacency can hold on, even though the world is changing around you. And that's the fundamental thing that's happening today, and it's affecting everybody. It's, it's happening to us as uh, individuals in our careers. It's happening, it's, it's happening to governments, uh, businesses big and small. Um, industries are changing. Uh, technology is driving a lot of the change, but that's not all. Um, global integration um, is having a huge effect on things, and you you could guess other kinds of of, of changes. And the smart people and the smart um, businesses or or nonprofits or parts of the government are those who are trying to figure out okay um, if it's changing. And in most places, it's changing faster. In other words, the speed of change is going up. That that turns out to be a hugely important thing. Then probably the way we've done things in the past is not going to work as well in the future. So how do we go about just, uh, you know, thinking about things? How do we go about organizing ourselves? Um, How do we go about making decisions that fits this uh, new environment? And um, that's how I think... Um, the great firms uh, uh, stay great. Uh, some uh, some great people, terrific human beings, uh, don't uh, kind of uh, uh, level off in their 30s or in their 40s. They keep growing and doing amazing things with amazing uh, benefits to them and their families. They, I guess the name of the book, uh, your newest book, is That's Not How We Do It Here. I guess that gives us the idea that one problem might be our thinking that that it's not changing. Like, no, 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 we, we do it this way. We, we've always done it this way it is, I guess that's a, that's something we have to overcome that things are changing and your, your thinking better be changing as well. Yeah. And, and how you do things, but it, it, see, it happens, it happens so easily, you know, in, in a business uh, to be efficient and you, and, and there's huge, huge pref- pressures to be efficient. Um, uh, you uh, you learn from the past, and you take those learnings and you put them into policies and procedures, 
um, and you uh, uh, chop yourself into si- what we call silos, you know, d- departments right. and divisions and the like that are based upon basically what was uh, an efficient way to, to implement what we've done in the past. And all of that stuff starts to solidify as uh, just, you know, the way we do it here. Mm-hmm. And new people are brought in, and they're exposed to that, and that's uh, sometimes sometimes it's all they've ever really seen and they get good at handling that and so um, faced with new problems or new people suggesting new stuff it's amazing how you know a perfectly bright sensible person will say something that looks so stupid (laughs) to us on the outside yeah um, which is no listen to this guy he's got a great idea what do you mean shutting him off yeah and that's not how we do it here. But I guess but that's our success, do. right? Our success seems to have gotten us here. But and then, and then, yeah, like you're saying, then we don't realize we still need to get there. Yeah. And and this whole point that the world is not just changing, but it's changing at an accelerating uh, rate. All kinds of uh, data backs that up. That's not just opinion. And that has just vast implications. Um, again, for for businesses and uh, all the way down to individuals and their and their own careers. Um, yeah, because if it's speeding up, is am I correct? If 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 the world's speeding up, if the change in the marketplace and in our businesses is speeding up, then our ability to learn and to discern would have to be faster. Absolutely, and you've got to put put a, a bigger emphasis on that. Um, you've got to, on the one hand, just make sure you, you you run the business each day, and you don't you know create enough problems for customers or for your staff or anybody else that um, uh, it just becomes a horrendous firefighting you know uh, scene. But on the other hand, you've got to also be constantly uh, thinking, okay, um, what's happening around us that we can learn from. Um, what seems to be coming at us, uh, what is not, uh, uh, what's, uh, see, one of the things that we've gotten relatively good at in the last, or good firms have gotten good at in the last 20 years is uh, called, let's figure out what, quote, best practices are and make sure we've incorporated those into the company. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, uh, you know, that can be, that's better than not doing that. Mm But, but by definition, best practices have to be from the past. I mean, best practices is not – you're not going to learn about my best practices um, by uh, having a five-minute phone call with me. You'd have to come and study me, or you'd have to study people who have studied me. And by the time you get around to figuring it out – and by the way, when did we figure this out? Five years ago, ten years mm. ago. And by the time you get around to actually being able to convince your organization to use that and execute it, it's 15 years out of date. And there's nothing wrong with that if the world isn't changing much on it. Right. But what if the world is changing at a faster and faster rate? You're executing these best practices, which actually are no longer best practices. They're just going to get you into trouble. And that's happening all over the place among what a lot of people would consider pretty uh, good firms, but who are making themselves vulnerable because of this uh, this way of going about things. Hmm. It's yeah, it's true because 
we would document the best practices. We've shared them, and then we want to enroll everybody into doing them. But you can't afford to take the time. You But you can't afford not to learn from best practices, but you also can't afford to take forever doing it. Um, in, in your book, you mention um, – uh, you use a, a metaphor, a story about a, about a, a meerkat. Is that right? Yeah, a meerkat uh, clan in uh, Africa. Meerkats are those – I don't know what yeah. movies they they've been in. They're cute. Let's they are cute. They, they poke their heads up and they're always looking around. Yep. Yeah. They live in burrows and they're cute. There you go. So teach us the story. What's the what's the metaphor? Well, it's just, it, it's it it yeah. It's it's a metaphor about um, um, life today and the very problems that people are facing today and some of the incorrect uh, conclusions that people draw about what's a good solution. And um, about um, a way forward into a future in which things uh, uh, change uh, faster and faster by looking at a clan who's doing just fine, you know, it's been very successful until the world starts, until its habitat literally starts to change on it. And it relies on what it knows how to do. And of course, things just get worse and worse. Mm. Um, And uh, somebody from the clan that in just horrible frustration um, over all the frustration in the clan and they're not succeeding, goes out and looks for a better way and finds uh, other um, uh, stories that are just as bad or horrible and then stumbles upon something that's extremely different. And for a while, she she thinks the thing that's basically uh, she's grown up in a mature business, you know, uh, mm-hmm. General Mills, and she goes out and she discovers a little high-tech business out in California. Mm. And for a while, she says, this is totally different and it's really cool. Um, and, which, of course, the high-tech business is so good, it grows. And at a certain point, because it doesn't want to change either, Right. Um, it outgrows what it can do with its free-willing, uh, no-rule, uh, no hierarchy, uh, entrepreneurial style, and the whole thing blows up on her again. And and she's smart enough to kind of start putting these pieces together because she she's a natural learner. Uh, she has natural curiosity, and um, with with some risk and trepidation, she goes back to her original clan and manages to get some help from others. And it's a difficult thing. Mm to start helping them to understand this new idea, which is what if you could combine the best of both worlds of a business that is really, really solid and gets the work done efficiently and is very, very forward-looking and entrepreneurial and innovative so that you, um, you don't run into problems today and you're constantly looking forward and kind of inventing the future before it hits you. Hmm. And uh, the end of the story is about her and an increasingly large group of people around her uh, with some eventual help from the bosses, one of whom gets it. And they, um, yeah, and they get it. That's cool. One of whom gets it. And uh, as they start inventing a whole new way of running a, a meerkat uh, clan, and it's a way, of course, that is our best guess at this point from the research we've done and from the research I've done at Harvard and the research I've done in this consulting company that's been created around my work of what can 
um, be the kind of the pioneering uh, uh, business of the future. Well, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. And in fact, let's take a break. Come back, John. Talk about it. And I'd love you to teach us some of those 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 learnings, those best practices that uh, a blend of the old and the new style. We're speaking again with Dr. John Cotter and uh, talking about his book, That's Not How We Do It Here, a story about how, organiz- how organizations rise and fall and can rise again. Also, uh, we'll come back and uh, continue the learning with the great uh, Professor Cotter. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Honored to have on the phone with us Dr. John Cotter, who is an award-winning uh, New York Times bestselling author, also an award-winning business and management thought leader, plus entrepreneur himself, uh, has an organization called CotterInternational.com, uh, where he takes his experience as a Harvard professor, plus all of his consulting experience, and is teaching us how to keep our organizations alive in this uh, constantly changing um, world that we're living in where learning and becoming a learning organization is life or death. Dr. John Carter, thank you so much. My pleasure again. This really and truly, I think it's important. Learning, it's you would think we would just kind of do it naturally, but uh, do we? Do we learn to be the best we can be, or do we just learn, you know, what's worked? Yeah, well, I, or or worse. Or worse, huh? Uh, we don't learn much at all. I mean, it worries me as an educator, or the part of me that's an educator. Uh, it's part of the discussion um, I had earlier today um, with somebody who's on the faculty of Harvard Business School that um, too often um, we're not helping people um, in uh K-12 education, much less undergraduate education or beyond, um, learn to be learners and mm. and see the virtue of that, and want and and get enjoyment uh, from that. Uh, um, and as the world becomes uh, faster moving, by definition, that's going to be. Uh, I mean, it's already happening. If you look at, for example, a place like Harvard Business School and look at the education that's happening there, when I first joined the faculty many decades ago, uh, I'm sure if we counted just the number of people and the number of days that they sat in the classroom, um, 80 to 90 percent of the education that went on there was for uh, MBA degrees. We Mm. didn't do any undergraduate. And the other 10 or 20 percent was what was called executive education. These are people that came back for shorter courses in their 30s or 40s or 50s. Today, the MBA program is the same size. They've kept it the same size. But executive ed has grown by at least a factor of 10, hmm. if not uh, more than that. Um, why? Because, because people are getting it. 
that, uh, that uh, uh, you know, what you pick up with your undergraduate degree uh, is terrific, but by the time you're 30, if you're not just voracious at reading and talking and, 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 and thinking, uh, you're going to have to find some way to get some more education about what's happening in the world and where people think they're going. Yeah. And more and more people are. I mean, the the really the the most successful businessmen I men I know and women now that I know, um, in their late fifties and in their sixties and their sixties are are the ones that keep asking questions about what's happening. You know, mm. what, what's happening over in China right now? Um, um, what's happening in this branch of technology? They're just naturally curious. And uh, what's happening uh, lower in my organization? You know, yeah. Um, are, are we really, are we really capitalizing on the ideas that people have? Are they running into barriers and in trying to execute this stuff? If so, what can I do to help? Um, uh, it's amazing when people become relatively satisfied or successful how they stop asking questions of that mm. kind. The questions they ask are more um, um, about trying to pin you down to see if you've done your job, you know. Yeah, uh, trap uh, you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're not learning. Um, they're, they're just trying to uh, um, meet today's standards and, and whack you on the head <laughs> if you didn't do your job. What, what, are some, uh, what are some signs that your company needs some serious learning? Like, so if I'm a manager or a leader of my team or my company, because there is the delay too, right? There's the delay between the, when, I, when I'm getting the information versus when, it's, when I'm needing the information sometimes. What, what are signs that I see in my company that it's time to learn? Well, if, here's, a good, here's a good sign. Um, look around, not just at yourself, but look around at the people who work for you and look at how they operate and how much they are coming up with new ideas and actually executing those ideas, mm. how much they are raising questions, not just to be troublesome, um, but to be helpful yeah. uh, and trying to figure out how to use uh, what they've learned from that in their jobs. Um, uh, not just, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, are they throwing ideas at you to sort out, you know, to make your 10-hour uh, day 12 hours long, um, but that they are actually kind of in, in their own way, all the way down to the bottom, the, the new 21-year-old grad, um, how much do they, do they automatically as do their jobs, plus they're constantly trying to figure out what new is going on, uh, what they can learn from uh, the outside the firm, mm. not just them, but outside the firm, um, and uh, trying things that aren't risky, that are low cost, uh, and making things better or making things or coming up with big ideas uh, that they start to test out. I mean, if you've got that kind of activity going on around you, the probability is you'll be pulled into it too. It'll be, you know, it'll be just too exciting not right. to stay out of it. And, and you may think of yourself as a great learner, but if you've got none of that going on in your organization, bad sign. Mm, that's true. And, and sometimes we, we push that down, don't we, by, you know, like poo-pooing all the questions. And I oh, guess if, if we're not seeing that, see that's that. a problem. Oh, yeah. Somebody, somebody uh, you're in a meeting and somebody raises uh, some interesting question about 
uh, you know, he, uh, he or she went to, uh, let's say you sell a food product, have been going to various supermarkets um, um, one after another every week, and, and this person tells you, you want to be your subordinates, that he's seeing this interesting pattern of how uh, shelf stocking is changing. And he's been talking to some of the managers of these supermarkets. He's done, out of his own uh, uh, time, this little research project, if you will. Mm -hmm. And he wants to talk about it at a meeting, and you find yourself looking at your watch, right? Yeah. Because you've got an agenda. And I mean, it's one thing to say, Harry, you know, this is really incredible. Uh, can we take this offline, and then we'll bring it back to this meeting next time. It's another thing to just, well, thank you, Harry, but we're late. <laughs> Next? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just shut it well, down. Everybody else reads that signal and it says to themselves, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> right, right. Not going to risk that. Of well, course not. And that's, I guess, that's part of the... That's part of the deal. Like, you have to create a spirit of this, right? A desire of Correct. learning. And if you're not learning yourself, that I mean, it, which would be hard. I could see by the time you're 60, it might be easy to no longer want to just keep pushing Correct. the curiosity. Correct. But, but instead, um, if you don't have it as a leader, then your people probably won't have it. Oh, absolutely, because they take this. Uh, most of the time, people take the signal from uh, the boss. And um, if the boss doesn't like X, they don't do X. Mm. Um, life is too short. What else know? do you do? What else do you suggest we do to, to kind of stir the pot a little bit or get, get our people um, curious? Well, one is to, is to get discussion going and thinking going about opportunities, uh, not just the current situation and problems, you're going to have to do that. I mean, if there's a problem today, you've got to solve it. You know, if a customer's screaming or if something broke at a plant, you've got to take care of it. That's just business. That's basics. That's, that's kindergarten. Um, but uh, focusing on and getting thinking about and getting conversation about what are the big opportunities. Now, some people will say, well, in my industry, there are no big opportunities. We have not found in one situation with our consulting company, with one client ever, no matter what they said, that we couldn't create um, some uh, sessions in which we couldn't get the executives in the right frame of mind, and by the end of the session, all excited by some statements that they're, they're writing down mm. about great opportunities for the firm. So opportunity, opportunity. Second is uh, the more that they can um, get that information out with the same sense of excitement that they begin to build about it, which means it's not only just head stuff, it's heart stuff, hearts and minds. That, remember, that's what all great leaders do. They win hearts and minds. Mm. To create this positive sense of urgency, not this, this you know, oh, my God, the, the, uh, the, the table's on fire and I'm locked in a room uh, <laughs> sense of urgency. Right. Uh, but this positive sense of urgency, um, and if if, if, if if, if the top group has identified, you know, if we go north, there's some great land up there that really grows great chop. Uh, and get, if we get people aligned to that basic concept of an opportunity and a sense of urgency, that just that sets the stage for some wonderful, wonderful things to happen. Um, a second is that you're not going to get some of the both the thinking and the execution happening 
through the same mechanism that you get the job done every day. You get the job done every day through a hierarchy, through smart, not dumb, uh, uh, procedures and policies and, and the like and job descriptions. Uh, new stuff executed quickly uh, will come through an organization that looks more like a, a startup in Silicon Valley. Mm. It's more networky-like. It has few policies and procedures. People are, are willing and able to talk to anybody. You know, it's diverse groups of people that just meet and talk on a regular basis, no silos. Um, uh, you're going to need that, and it's got to be connected to and integrated in closely with the mothership. Trying to put it, you know, 3,000 miles away as a think tank doesn't work. Right. That's one of the things I was talking about with a guy this morning. And the more that the, you can get those ideas going and not turn them into big projects, but turn them into uh, little projects where um, uh, that are not expensive and it can be done quickly. So you can start creating some real learning and you can start creating some uh, quick wins hmm. where um, it begins to tell you, yeah, we were right. You know, there's some really cool stuff if we move north, hmm. and if we move it up at a much faster speed. It gives you credibility. It gets more people on board. It gets more people excited. And if, uh, if the winds are uh, chosen correctly, it'll actually help you with uh, uh, today's um, uh, business. What a great so, learning, though. The, the, the delivery system of, a, of an existing company doesn't necessarily create the learning that might need to be for the future. So we could break that off a little bit. I mean, you can still learn from your systems and your current structure, but you're saying you might need a smaller little exploratory team to, to, to go work on some of the future things. Sure, and and teams would be great. Yeah, and uh, it's even greater if you can uh, have not a dedicated group that, that too often kind of get lost mm-hmm. over in the corner or get put in a, you know, in a in, in a, a little uh, group out in California. Right. But it's 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 a, a group of people that don't normally um, associate with each other from marketing and engineering and production. Um, that have regular jobs and are just uh, excited enough about wanting to do this stuff that they volunteer to take on some of these, uh, develop some of these, and take on some of these projects so that there's never a disconnect between the new work and the new learning and the new thinking about the future and the organization that ultimately is going to have to take on that stuff and make it a part of daily reality. I love it. No, that's and and again, I think that would innovate and energize, or uh, probably enervate and energize so many people, right? Because Correct. finally, I'm I'm part of creating new with what I know. I mean, that's Correct. so many people are disengaged. Correct. Well, and a lot of what this is, at least clients tell us, is that for the first time they find lots and lots of employees saying that they're engaged. Mm. And they're not just engaged in kind of feeling good about the company. They're engaged in doing something that's really meaningful. Mm -hmm. And people love that. Yeah. We all love that. Oh, yeah. And they're a part of it, and they're appreciative, and and they make it work. Dr. John Carter, or Cotter, we appreciate this. This has been a great learning for me. I thank you for your time. Uh, You're more than welcome. Seriously important, folks. That's not how we do it here. That's not how we do it here. Get rid of the phrase. Instead, let's go figure out how we can do it. Powerful stuff. Go check out the book. That's not how we do it here. 
and uh, learn more from John Cotter. We'll continue this uh, after the break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, we live in a country where owning a car is almost a necessity, but the process of buying and taking care of a car isn't always as glamorous as it may seem. Our producer, Leanna Tan, went through this for the first time this past week when she bought her first car, and she's going to share with us a little about her, about her experience. And he'd come down the chimney, and then he would give you all the stuff that he made, man. He did it all in one night, man. Hey, now how'd he do that, man? Oh, well, man, he took the freeway. A proud car owner. That's right. I bought my first car just last week. Cars that are brand new as far as I'm concerned. We are forced by law to sell them as used. Do you want to save some money? And I thought it would be great. I could arrive at and leave parties whenever I wanted to. I could visit my family more often. Right on. And I'd double my wardrobe space and have an entire extra storage unit to put all my other clothes and shoes. I pictured the windows rolled down, my hair flowing in the wind, music blasting on the speakers, and gliding down the highway in bliss. I soon came to realize that there's a lot more that comes with having a car. And it's not all flowing hair and bliss. With great power comes great responsibility. So, as a warning to all you car shoppers, here are five woes of car ownership that you should probably prepare for if you're considering a purchase. One! Spare cash and padded savings account will become fond memories. Sorry, I ain't got no money. I'm not trying to be funny, but I left it all at home today. Buying a car means more than just purchasing the car. It comes with the great ball and chain of monthly insurance bills. For over 75 years, people have saved money with Gecko. So it. What? What did I say? Not to mention filling the gas tank, checkups, car washes, and don't forget all the little accessories. Yes, in our day and age, it's almost impossible to drive without investing in one of those little phone holder gadgets. <gasps> a cop holder? Bert, we gotta stop and get a cop! And just a word to the wise, when you're shopping on Amazon for seat covers, Please avoid the hot pink faux fur ones. Two. Your carbon footprint will double in size. Too much carbon monoxide for me to bear. All those warm fuzzies you felt thinking of all the trees and animals you were saving when you walked to work before will be gone. Stench. Be prepared to carry a burden of shame knowing that every time you push the gas pedal, you're contributing to the destruction of the ozone layer and the spread of global warming. Relative contributions to global warming. In our country, we're responsible for more than all of South America, all of Africa, all of Say nothing about the extra 10 pounds you'll probably pack on now that you're not walking several miles a day. Three! You will be volunteering yourself for a life of solitude. Those tender carpooling days are over. Yes, all those midnight grocery runs and weekend errands you enjoyed tagging along with your roommates and friends suddenly turn into quiet, lonely trips to Walmart. You will be experiencing a new level of self-consciousness and fear. I sense much fear in you. While your entire life you became accustomed to leisurely riding in the passenger seat, rattling off details of your day and occasionally suggesting an alternate route, now you will become hyper-aware of all those signs that once nearly passed your peripheral vision. Can we please ask someone for directions? 
action! Yes, you'll have to channel back to that time you were 15 half asleep in driver's ed trying to comprehend an extremely dry manual. Don't forget that when the road slopes up or down, you must adjust the pressure on the gas pedal accordingly. Because now, the rules of the road apply to you. Not to mention learning directions. 60 eastbound just before the 57, a couple of cars in a big race. You realize how much you took for granted those people who could remember how to get to your house after going there once. Oh, no. As you constantly punch your own address into the GPS just to get home from work every day. Five. You suddenly realize there's not enough room in the world for you. As a pedestrian, the world was yours. You could sneak behind buildings, through fences, take back alleyways, and really only worry about having a bed to sleep on and a chair to sit on. But now you'll enter a world of parking anxiety. The amount of time you thought you were saving driving home from work rather than walking is actually taken up by the frantic scramble to find an open parking spot. You will now have to pick your method of insanity, choosing between endless minutes of driving in circles over and over again, or withstanding the constant gnawing anxiety as the clock counts down in the back of your mind wherever you go, reminding you that soon you're going to have to move your car out of that two-hour limited parking space. Or... Once you actually do find a parking space, you'll have to withstand the anxiety of figuring out the exact angle to turn your car to fit nicely into that tiny space without scratching the cars beside you. Or taking on the dreaded 50-point turn parallel park. So, I just wanted to take this moment to thank all of those courageous, kind souls who offered me rides these past couple of decades of my life. I never knew how much they were sacrificing so I could live a happy pedestrian life. And all of you out there seeking a new pair of wheels, just make sure you're making an educated decision and remember to consider the earth, your wallet, your health, and your sanity before rushing to that car dealership. Pedestrians, count your blessings. And the rest of you, happy car shopping and good luck. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. When it comes to cheese, please make every slice count. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to hour number three of the program. The show where you learn to uh, live and love and lead healthier lives. It's also where you learn some things you didn't even know you needed to know. I know I do. Absolutely you do. There's a lot of learning to be had today. Today uh, we will be learning about how women may be smarter than men. What? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. They are. Sounds just like an inflammatory headline. It does, except when it comes to emotional intelligence, they have an advantage. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, tell me that doesn't seem obvious. Just think of the guys. I was just watching videos of just stupid things people do. A guy let a car drive over his leg. Stupid! <laughs> yeah. 
So we will be talking with a True Blue expert uh, on the topic of emotional intelligence and some of the interesting research that uh, they've been doing about uh, ladies and emotional intelligence. And also, by the way, all of us, we we it's not like because emotional intelligence is broken down into different areas, different categories, and men lead in certain categories, women lead in other categories, but it might explain some of the troubles we tend to have with each other. Wow. Mm-hmm. We'll get Oakley to all, Oakley Doakley. We'll get to all that fun stuff. Today's also Ask a Stupid Question Day. Do you know the way to San Jose? I've been away so long. That's a great song. Do you know the way to I San do. Jose? I do. Okay, so here is another... Well, I think it's an important question that should be brought up. Okay. On so Brought up, you mean on Ask a Stupid Question Day? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay, so... Why is it that when you go into the grocery store, we all know that when you go to the movie theater, you're not supposed to take in your own candy, right? No, absolutely not. But when you go to the candy section, you know those $1 boxes of candy? Yeah. It doesn't say dollar candy. It says movie theater candy. So if we're not supposed to take candy into the movie theater, then why are the grocery stores encouraging us to do it? So you can enjoy the movie theater experience at home. At home. It didn't say movie theater. At how many of us have a movie theater at our home? I do. Terry Mine, does. Mine's pretty good. Yeah, I'm, it's not movie theater, but yeah, oh, I you're like not. it. Jeff, you don't have a theater at home. <laughs> it's kind of a stupid question, but today's the day to ask it. If you're going to ask a dumb question today, today's it. Just, but be careful, folks, because the friends around you they don't listen to the show, maybe, and so. Maybe they didn't know today's Ask a Stupid Question Day. So it's also Hug a Stupid Question Asker Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then help build up one who was put down for asking a stupid question day. So it's a very, 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 very big day. Um, today also we will be uh, – we've got a lot of news stories to get to. Crazy stuff. Uh, the, the Itsy Bitsy Spider just about – Sank a boat and a car and a family. and Is that guy still alive? Yeah. But in trauma. I mean, they're like majorly in some serious therapy right now because of just a little spider. Just a spider. So we'll talk uh, emotional intelligence. We'll talk spiders with you. Of course, we'll visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Find out about their show. I also want to find out um, if Taysom Hill feels like he's going to be safer because he doesn't have to face the Aggies. Right, right. He's been injured the last what two years playing Utah State on this on the and Friday is normally when the game is because it's the game that they have on Friday preceding LDS General Conference and so we'll ask Taysom about that. I mean, not Taysom. We'll ask the good guys at BYU Sports Nation see what they think. We talked to Taysom's wife one year, oh. and then he immediately got injured. So I was going to do it. Yeah. That was what last year I was yeah. going to try to probably do it this year, and I thought. No, that might be a precedent. I wonder if we created We yeah. don't want to be the one that causes injuries. We don't want to put a hex on anybody. So we'll get to all that fun stuff, plus our hero of the day, of course. But first, let's start it all off with Sadie Nielsen. Find out about the headlines around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? On Tuesday, President Obama nominated Jeffrey De Laurentiis as the first U.S. ambassador to Cuba in more than a half century. Since 2014, when the U.S. embassy in Havana reopened, De Laurentiis has been the country's chief diplomat in Cuba. But he's been able to get a promotion to ambassador now that the diplomatic freeze is over. 
More than 84 million Americans watched Monday night's debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and thousands of miles away in a secret location somewhere in Afghanistan, so did the leaders of the Taliban. A spokesman for the militant organization, which has killed thousands of people during two decades of violence, told NBC News they were very interested in watching and said there was nothing of interest to us in the debate, as both of them said little about Afghanistan and their future plans for the country. An unarmed black man shot by police near San Diego on Tuesday afternoon for acting erratically died of his injuries, prompting angry protesters to gather while the man was still being treated at a local hospital. Police said they were called to a shopping center around 2 p.m. on reports of a man walking in traffic and generally acting erratically in the parking lot. After police said he raised an object and took a stance that suggested he had a gun, an officer shot 30-year-old Alfred Alongo. Protesters quickly gathered while police were still working on the scene with several dozen cursing at the officers for what they believed was a wrongful shooting. Police later said the man was not armed and had first tried to subdue him with a stun gun. And finally... Yes? Uh, Matt, do you like climbing walls? Like wall climbs? Um, Rock climbing, no, I guess is the particular no, thing. No? Okay. No. Well, maybe this is something that will help you to like it a little bit okay, more. Yeah. There's something called Augmented Climbing Incorporated. Uh-huh. They have come up with a way to stay strong and have fun interactively by building an interactive light-up climbing wall. Um, It's similar to a game of air hockey, except you are on a rock climbing wall. So you get on the wall. You have the little puck that's actually not there because it's augmented, of course. And you you hit it back and forth. Okay. To another person on the wall? To another person on the wall. So there's two people on the wall, and it's like air hockey, except you're on... Okay. A rock climbing wall. What about your arms shaking and your legs quivering See, because you're hanging suspended from a wall? That's the get fit part. Right. Shouldn't you be focused on not falling off the wall yeah, rather than It seems like you would want to distract. It's, it's pretty safe. You're only like you can become like three feet off the off the. Floor, Is it something so. you'd want to do at the top of Everest on the um, way summiting Everest? Yeah, I would watch that. <laughs> sure. Why not? Hey Jerry, you want to play ping pong on the wall? Do it. Wow, people are doing this, huh? But it's all augmented reality. So you couldn't we really just put on some goggles and do it on the couch? And it would feel similarly. The answer would be yes, Matt, you could. <sighs> Thanks, Sadie. That's uh, Way to take a physical activity and turn it into couch games. Exactly. You can do anything yeah. with a pair of goggles and headphones. That's, that's why I was never really a fan of the Nintendo Wii. Mm. They wanted you to stand up and move around. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, that's not video games. It's a lot of work. All my video games, I sit down, there's a controller, and you play a game. There's I'm, no moving. What we is played this? tennis for about two hours last night. I'm telling you. The only moving is when you physically get up and attack your brother because he beat you again at mm. Madden or something. You just yes. can't handle it. See, that's what families are for. Violence between brothers. It's not really violence. Well, it is if the cops get called. No, we never went that far. Oh, you didn't? It was more pillows. Ah, Yeah. Cute. Until the pillow exploded, then mom's mad. <laughs> Did you ever have a pillow explode? We, I always saw these people having pillow, fi- pillow fights where they would explode, and I'm like, wow. We ripped the stitching out of one, and it was you know, one of my mom's yeah. special throw pillows that we thought the term throw pillow was yeah. to throw. And- one of my greatest moments, uh, my sister had a green bean, bean bag chair. Mm. And I unzipped it just a little, and then I pushed her into it, and boom, all the little beans came out. Wow. Oh, he nailed it. She's not that big. Yeah, that was rude. That was crazy. That was rude.
It was great. And then I had, guess who had to clean them up? Mom? Nope, me. Oh. Thanks. Hey, today, uh, crazy story um, about a spider. Have you ever backed a boat in a boat trailer? Yes. It's intense. It's a very difficult thing. And so an Australian woman jumped out of her car after a spider crawled on her lap on Saturday and could do nothing but watch as her car rolled into the water. The 18-year-old had just pulled up at a boat ramp when a large spider dropped in just after 7 a.m. So her car's, I guess, sitting there. I don't know what she was doing at the water's edge. When I first read the story, I thought, oh, I envisioned it as she's just at a boat ramp ready to launch a boat. But the spider, check this out. The spider drops down into her lap, and the 18-year-old freaks out. Witnesses said she leapt out of the car and started doing a spider dance. Belongs to me, you've been invited to my spider dance, spider dance, spider dance. So move along with me and clap Apparently played your her hands, own music, the hands, spider dance music. Uh, Stuart Cooper, who was standing about 50 meters away, said the woman appeared to be in shock as her car edged towards the water. You know, that's the problem, is when you're doing the spider dance and your car is starting to go into the lake, it's time to end the dance. Are you that afraid of spiders, Terry? Or you just step on them? It is pretty amazing when a spider lands on even the strongest of humans. They tend to go all, you know, well, jello-y. Mean, you, you know, they crawl across your hand or something. It kind of freaks you out because it's... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, what the... But then usually when I'm running around my house, I have these sandals. Mm. And I just whip a sandal off and whack. Kill the spider. Clean off the shoe and move on with life. Ever since um, I watched Charlotte's Web and actually read Charlotte's Web as a child, yeah. I have a hard time killing spiders. Really? I, I kind of understood that to be a fictional story and it didn't really affect me. Yeah. That's the difference between you and me. Right. Also, the difference maybe between emotionally intelligent versus not. Wow. That was rude. <laughs> totally rude, but we'll find out from the expert. A uh, 63-year-old Japanese man fights off a bear with karate. Most people don't respond to charging bears by fighting back. Yet, rather than run from a snarling Asian black bear, one Japanese man put his skills to the test. 63-year-old Atsushi Aoki was fishing in the mountains when a bear attacked him. The bear was so strong, and it knocked him down. Aoki told uh, the broadcasting Tokyo Broadcasting System, Aoki took up a karate fighter stance, putting his fist in front of him and punched at the bear's eyes. Wow. Which made uh, the beast retreat. I thought it's either kill, I kill him or he kills me, Aoki said. That really hurt. I'm going to have a lump there, you idiot. That was the bear. The bear. The bear's going to have a lump there. Uh, apparently, um, uh, Aoki was sent to the hospital to treat the wounds on his head, his arm, and his leg. But he, this tough guy, he drove himself to the hospital and even remembered to grab the fish that he had caught on the way out. Don't forget the fish. That's why the bear was there. Forget the karate. Hand the bear your fish. Isn't that a rule in nature? Always give the bear the fish. 
or see bear run. Yeah. Don't mess with the bear. This didn't sound like gentle Ben. No. What happened to that's an American bear. Those American bears are different. Gentle Ben. Ah, well, that's pretty tough cookie right there, I'll tell you. We will uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence and uh, be talking to one of the experts in the field. Dr. Travis Bradbury will be joining us, and uh, he's going to teach us about why women may be more emotionally intelligent than men, according to his data. It's pretty interesting. It's also interesting to see where we are stronger in emotional intelligence by gender. Stick with us. Might uh, open up some of your thoughts about your own relationships. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger. We'll be right back. I say, let us put man and a woman together to find out which one is smarter. <laughs> some say men, but I say no. The women got the men, they should know. Welcome back, friends. A little uh, Harry Belafonte for you. And uh, according to our next guest, uh, women, why women are smarter than men. Now, is that true? You know what? It may very well be true. Um, joining us is, um, it's, you know, that debate of the smarter sex, it's, it's been going on since day one, I'm sure. But uh, recent studies suggest that there is some data to support that uh, girls, when it comes to emotional intelligence, are um, they may have an advantage, and we'll talk about that. Dr. Travis Bradbury joins us. He's co-founder of the world's leading provider of emotional intelligence tests, Talent Smart. He's also author of the award-winning book Emotional Intelligence 2.0, and we're honored to have him with us, Dr. Travis Bradbury. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure, thanks for having me. What an interesting uh, headline you got there, uh, women, uh, why women are smarter than men. Explain emotional intelligence, because I think that's where you're saying they, they have an advantage or they, they, they do show signs of, of an advantage. Well, emotional intelligence is a unique skill set, and the first thing you need to understand to understand how, what, what exactly emotional intelligence is, is you need to understand how our brains are wired. Um, Everything that we experience is, is really generates an emotional response. So we're hardwired to have an emotional reaction to events before we're able to think rationally about them. And emotional intelligence is how well you understand your emotions, how aware you are of them, how, how well you manage them and respond to them, and also how aware you are of emotions in other people, whether or not you're aware of you know, what the world looks like through their eyes, what they're trying to communicate, and, and how well you use that information to manage your relationships. Hmm. So it really is, it's, it's, the, it's the emotional component. And like you say, we're, we're all wired to have some emotional, you know, uh, response to everything we do. It's the emotion that tells us, like, what to do, when to do it, how fast to do it, right? Right. And, and you know, the way our brains are set up, the, 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 the very basic center of the brain is where emotions are generated. The limbic system um, ensures that as signals travel across the brain, the emotional reaction happens first. The, the rational thought doesn't happen until it reaches, you know, the far reaches of the brain, these areas that develop much later. And so the emotions are already driving the bus before you, you really get a chance to start, start thinking about them and hopefully becoming aware of them. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, we find that most people are not. My company has tested more than a million people now, and we find that just 36% of people 
are able to accurately identify their emotions as they happen. Really? Is, mm-hmm. And it's, it's something we can do. We can understand it. It's just are we just not skilled or trained in it? Because isn't that one of the points of emotional intelligence is this is something you can improve? Absolutely. We, we live in a world that just doesn't always know what's best for us, doesn't equip us to understand our emotions. You know, we, we, our society tends to teach us to stuff our feelings and, 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 and just try to pretend they're not there. And that's a really ineffective way to go about it because you can't turn your emotions off. They're going to happen whether you like it or not. And the beauty of the emotional intelligence skill is the, the pathway between your reason and your feelings is very flexible and adaptive to change. So as people work to develop their emotional intelligence, they actually change their brain. And, and it's, it's a, a skill that, unlike your IQ, um, you can actually increase your level of emotional intelligence. Hmm. And so when you say women um, are smarter in emotional intelligence, because there's like four or five measures that you, that you use, I assume, uh, the self-awareness kind of idea, self-management, social awareness, relationship management. Are, are women ahead in all of those categories? Or maybe walk us through and let us know where, are, where do women have an advantage? Where do men have an advantage? Sure. The, the four skills that you mentioned are the four components of emotional intelligence. And we've given the, the test that comes with my book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, is something you take online. So beyond all the R&D we did to develop that test, you know, we've sold more than a million books now, so we have data on just a, a huge, huge sample of people. And we find that women outscore men on average by a couple of points in overall EQ. That gap isn't, isn't huge, but when you look at the four individual skills, the, the picture really starts to come to life as to what the unique strengths and weaknesses are of, of men and women. So the first skill is self-awareness, and that's how aware you are of your emotions, how well you understand them. And we actually find that the, the men and women score identically in mm. self-awareness. And this is an interesting one because the, the cop-out that you usually hear from men uh, when it comes to emotions is, you know, I don't... You know, I don't, I don't understand that stuff, or I don't think about that, or that doesn't pertain to me. And, and we actually find that isn't the case, that men are just aware of their emotions as, as women. Um, the difference you start to see is in what people do with those emotions. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to self-management and the ability to, to manage your emotions, we actually find that men outscore women by a small margin. Men outscore women in the ability to manage their emotion? Yes, yes. So, so that awareness is, you know, y- 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 your awareness equips you to manage your emotions. Hmm. And, you know, why men would have more effective coping mechanisms in managing emotions, I, I, I don't have an answer to that. But we do find that they outscore women by a little bit. The biggest gap we find is on the social side of things. So social awareness is how perceptive you are at understanding the emotions and the experience of other people. And there we find that women outscore men by a large margin. Hmm. Um, the theory here is that you know, women growing up are socialized to be more nurturing and caring, um, attuned to other people than men are. So it's, it's a skill that they are sort of equipped with growing up. The trick is, you know, in life and, and particularly in the workplace where we've done a lot of research linking these skills to job performance, um, particularly for leaders, 
social awareness is a skill that you really, really want to have. So that's a deficit that men should um, be eager to improve. Hmm. Which might be why I hear a lot of, uh, in my coaching work, I hear a lot of wives that are really mad about how their husband, they're so harsh with the kids. Why are you so, they're really like sensitive, it seems like, to how hard the guy is coming down on the child. And I wonder if that's not because they're picking up other cues. They're picking up more social cues. Well, and, and it's, it's likely that, and it's also probably a combination of, um, you know, if the men are too, being too harsh, they don't have the same level of social awareness of how what they're doing impacts right, the kids. Right, right. You know, and, and what, it, what it looks like from their perspective. When I give talks, I, I show this great clip from The Pursuit of Happiness, where Will Smith is finally taking his son out to play a little basketball. Um, they never get to spend time together, and, and he, he kind of throws the weight of the world on his son's shoulders because he wants to be a basketball player. And, um, you know, most parents would treat that like a tantrum when the kid reacts, but the beauty of that clip is he recognizes that he's kind of ruining the one little bit of fun they, they get to have together. So mm. those, in those moments, social awareness can really equip you to kind of see, see things from the other person's perspective, which then helps you understand what you're bringing to the table sure. and, and how you affected that. Which is why it is such a great leadership skill. And then the last one is relationship management. Who has the advantage, or the advantage there? Yeah, so we, we find that, that women outscore men in relationship management. It isn't a huge margin. It's, it's similar to the gap um, through which men outscore women in self-management. And this, again, you know... Relationship management, it, it, it depends a lot on what you do, but it really hinges on your awareness of other people. Hmm. So it's hard to change your behavior in the moment to react and treat people differently if you don't understand what's going on with them. So I think that women's social awareness really gives them the upper hand when it comes to managing relationships more effectively. So it's fascinating. Uh, self-awareness, men and women pretty equal. Self-management, men tend to outscore women there by a bit. Uh, social awareness, women tend to have an advantage. Relationship management, about the same score as self-management for the men. It, it, tell us what this all means. What, how, does, how do these differences get acted out in our relationships and our social engagement? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because any one individual can, can buck these trends, but you need to understand as a society how men and women problem-solve around emotions. And I just find that a lot of people have ideas around, they create limitations around what they can do with their emotions based on their gender. Mm. And that, that really isn't the case. I think that this data shows that despite the fact that women are outscoring men, I mean, most of these are very small margins. And the fact that the genders are equal in self-awareness, to me, says a lot. Right. It says that, you know, we, we both understand emotions equally, which means we can both use them equally. It's just a matter of perspective and effort. Is it, um, as you see this, it's got to be impacting a lot of uh, men as more and more women are coming into the workplace and they're bringing these really powerful social skills. Is it, how is it affecting the work environment? Well, we find that um, emotional intelligence explains about 60% of how people do in the workplace. That's how much of your job performance that it accounts for because it's really measuring everything outside of, you know, your intellect and your industry experience and these sort of core skills that, that you can't change. 
the trick is those are all threshold levels of competence. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if you're working in a middle management position, all the middle managers have a similar IQ and similar experience. You're all there because of that. What, or, or as a leader as well, what differentiates you is your level of emotional intelligence, the skill that actually explains the majority of your job performance. So um, that's why we find that 90% of top performers are, are high in emotional intelligence. It's, it's really something that can set you apart. Yeah. Workplace. See, yeah, it seems like a, a huge ad- advantage if we can be paying attention to it. Uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Travis Bradbury, world-renowned expert in emotional intelligence, award-winning co-author of the book Emotional Intelligence, and co-founder of the world's leading provider of emotional intelligence tests at TalentSmart. You can go to talentsmart.com to get more information about all of their work. We'll take a break, come back, and wrap up our discussion about emotionally intelligent people. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you think of intelligence forever, we've always framed it as, you know, just your ability to retain information and recall, uh, passing your ACTs, passing all of those important tests that we do to get into college, except emotional intelligence is one that that about the last 30 years has been pushed on and tried to uh, and deepened in understanding. Joining us is Dr. Travis Bradbury. He's the co-author of the book uh, Emotional Intelligence 2.0 and founder of the organization Talent Smart. Go to his website, Talents, talentsmart.com, where they do a lot of testing. So far, they've tested one million people um, and their levels of, of emotional intelligence. Overall, do you sense that are we becoming, uh, uh, Travis, are we becoming more emotionally intelligent as a as a humanity just as we've been studying it more and teaching it more over the last 30 years or so yes we have seen some improvement in in overall emotional intelligence scores and you can definitely see the level of discussion of emotional intelligence the 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 awareness in popular society is is increasing every year um you know when the eagles fired their coach last year they said they wanted to the, 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 that it was because they're looking for someone who had uh, more emotional intelligence. Hmm. And you just start to see this time and time again where people recognize that this is a critical skill for leaders to possess. And it's, it's certainly becoming more mainstream. A lot of employers are looking for the skill in their hiring as well. It's uh, as I was used to be in the industry, a lot of this emotional intelligence stuff was seen or called a soft skill. It's kind of the human skills. Um, and, and then some companies would rather get into the systems and the structure and processes. And um, But the reality is, it's, it seems to me, even if you have a great system, you still have humans involved in it. So the better you can understand yourself and others, the better the systems can be. Yeah, and, 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 and it's really interesting, you know, when people talk about emotional intelligence being a soft skill. I mean, in a lot of ways it is because it's a flexible skill. Um, you know, IQ isn't what you know. It's the pace, as you mentioned, through which you assimilate new information, yeah. how, how, how quickly you absorb information. Well, they've done longitudinal studies where they've followed people from age 5 to age 50, and IQ is measured relative to your peers, and they see that your IQ scores don't change. They're locked in at age 5. 
Um, personality is another fixed characteristic that organizations like to look at, and, and people often confuse this with emotional intelligence, but personalities are these stable set of preferences and tendencies through which you approach the world. So if you're hopelessly extroverted, you're always going to be that way. If you're hopelessly introverted, you know, people are going to, uh, being around people is going to drain your energy. It's going to be difficult. Well, this is fixed in your late, you know, you see it in children, and it's just that area of the brain becomes fixed by late teens, early 20s. So many of our characteristics are not soft. They're fixed. There's absolutely nothing you can do right. about them. And that's the beauty of emotional intelligence is it's a soft, malleable skill. Is, is there a correlation then, I'm assuming there would be, between EQ and happiness? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's a big connection because, you know, a lot of what people talk about um, in the happiness research and also in um, success research is having a growth mindset. Um, Carol Dweck's done a lot of research there, and this idea is that if, if you approach um, trials and tribulations with, um, with tolerance and you look for opportunity and rather than sort of allowing them to, to beat you down and make you give up, you tend to be a lot happier and you tend to be a lot uh, more successful. Well, it's really hard to have a growth mindset unless you have emotional intelligence, unless you're able to channel your emotions into producing the behavior that you want as opposed to letting them drive the bus. Mm. Is, is there, are there some people that, I mean, I've watched TV enough to know, I've watched the cops show quite a bit, um, to know that it seems like there's some people that just really struggle with like self-control, self-management. Are, are some people incapable for some reason, physiologically, chemically, psychologically, to actually manage their own emotion? You know, if there's, there's certain um, disabilities that put you very, very far off on the spectrum that, that can make it really difficult to control your emotions. Um, autism spectrum disorders is a, a good example of that. The, the limbic system where emotions are, are generated is actually grossly underdeveloped in people that have autism. Now, the interesting thing about cops is a lot of the people that you see are, are having uh, what we call an emotional hijacking where your emotions have completely taken over They're your flooded. behavior. Yeah. And there's a sequence of events that have put themselves there. And average uh, individuals who have low, you know, you or I who have low EQ moments uh, during the day, we do the exact same thing to ourselves. It's, it's rare that something out of the blue produce this emotional hijacking, and that's the tendency mm. we have to do. We tend to blame it on that. But if you look at the sequence of events that, that led up to you being chased by a police dog, <laughs> you know, it started with, um, you, you know, maybe for the, for the guy on cops, you know, a fight with your wife, and then you went out and had too much to drink right. and fell off the wagon, and, you know, it's, it's these choices the spiral. you make. And, and, but, then, and, like, but then you get flooded, is what you're saying. You get flooded by the chemistry, and then the chemistry tends to run you. Absolutely, because there are situations that make our emotions come on really, really strong. And it's very hard to turn off an emotional hijacking. What emotionally intelligent people do is they recognize the situations that are starting to take them down that path, and they have tools to redirect, mm. calm themselves down, to remove them from those situations before they get in a place where they're out of control and they do something they regret. Love it. Um, as, as we wrap up, and as a dad, what would you say is the one thing I could do today and consistently with my children, my family, to, to help us all become more aware of emotional intelligence? You know, the, the toughest thing for parents, because this creates this constant level of accountability, but that's what we have, 
is, is modeling. And the fact of the matter is kids are absorbing what we do like a sponge, and they're modeling themselves off of us as parents. So when it comes to emotions, you want to be a model, not just of, you don't have to have a perfect reaction to your emotions because no, no one does and, and your children don't need to you know, be these pillars of emotional intelligence, but they need to understand their emotions. And that's something that you can really model is processing emotions, talking about them. Um, even, even if you have a, a low EQ moment and you overreact to something, just, just explaining to them what happened. And, mm. and, and that's a really, really big thing is, is to let children become aware of emotions and learn how to discuss them. That's powerful. And let them, yeah, let them see that, you know, we can change and we can acknowledge it and it's not necessarily fixed in who we are. Um, wonderful stuff. Dr. Travis Bradbury, thank you so much for being with us and uh, highly suggest to everybody, go check out the website, talentsmart.com. Wonderful resources, tools there, also information about where you can get the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Let's start working on it all together now. Managing emotion might uh, be able to change even how you see the world. Wouldn't that be great? less flooding. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's going to be up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, today is the day, my friends, that uh, we get to ask a stupid question day. And uh, who better to ask those questions to than our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Matthew. What's up? How it are is, you? It is wonderful to hear that glorious music you have selected to introduce us today. <laughs> Little Weird Al Yankovic. Today's the day you get to ask a stupid question. Do you we guys, do that every, every single every day. day. <laughs> at least four times. See, you guys, you guys have made it an art form, really. <laughs> a lot of people only get one day a year, but you guys do it four times a day. Now, granted, we get a pass today is more like it. See, we yeah. don't always get a pass on our dumb questions other days of the year. That's true. Today is the day you're free from any ridicule by others. Okay, Jerem, what dumb question are you going to ask right now? Uh, why did you ask me that? Oh. <laughs> That's a dumb question. <laughs> what a dumb question. Hey, yeah, hey yeah. guys, I've got a question for you. Okay. Is it dumb? Um, it's, it's kind of dumb. Okay. If you were, let's just say there was a, a car accident in front of you, a truck tips over, catches on fire, whatever. And uh, you could choose, but you have to sit there for like two hours. Uh-huh. What would you want to be on fire in the truck? <laughs> Fireworks. Uh, fireworks? Hey, yes. that would be super. F- oh, wow. That would be fun. Because uh, we did a story today where a guy had a truck full of bacon. Oh. And the bacon truck caught on fire because the brakes got too hot and bada boom, bada bing. The next thing you know, it just cooked smells bacon. cooked bacon for mm. hours. <laughs> that probably smelled amazing. Wouldn't that amazing? I mean, I, would, I could <laughs> handle that. But fireworks would be a really fun thing. Anything else, Jeremy, you got to pick? What do you want burning in front of you? Utah gear. Oh, I'm burning in front of me. <laughs> opposing defenses. Oh, I love the smell All of opposing defenses. All that Utah Under Armour gear. Ooh, see? 
I yeah, think... I, I visited some friends the other day, and they both had like the same Under Armour sweatshirt on. So I was like, "Is this visit brought to you by Under Armour? Like, what what's going on, you guys?" <laughs> when I see Under Armour, I think Utah. Yeah, is an interesting thing because this is a this is a Nike school. So those brands and labels have value mm-hmm. you know, to those schools because they provide a bunch of money. Well, and don't you think that? Um, I mean, I had kids telling me to shoot them because they thought that they were really armored with Under Armour. Uh oh. Yeah. Da- that sounds dangerous. That, that really does. I chose not to. While you were telling that story about the truck that uh, started yeah. on fire with bacon, it got me thinking about the longest delay I ever had on a road. How long? Seven hours. Really? In South Korea, during <laughs> monsoon season, there was a huge mudslide. And we were with this poor, <laughs> sweet Korean woman, me and my, at the time, my missionary companion, Yeah. in a... Hyundai Star X van for seven hours. <laughs> what did we you moved do? probably 200 yards in seven hours. Oh, holy shit. Okay. At one point, she said, I think I'm going to go a little crazy. But before I go crazy, maybe we should all just. Uh, <laughs> she's like, Is there a gun in here? <laughs> did she really? <laughs> yeah. We need Whoa. a gun. <laughs> this 60 year old Korean woman. Oh, cute, though. See, at least you had each other. Who was the mission president's wife? She's like, Maybe there's a gun in here. We can have some fun or something. <laughs> oh, it was the mission president's wife. Yeah. I was, like, um, yeah. I, I was once snowed in, so I live in Utah, and I, w- uh-huh. I was snowed in, not in Utah, but in Arizona, Flagstaff, Arizona, for a day and a half. Oh, my goodness. Nightmare. Horrible. A day and a half. Yeah. There, there are times over Christmas break where I will just stay inside for a full day. Will you really not just leave watch, the house? Yeah, just watching football or whatever. Yeah, but that's yeah. You weren't. You've got to give us an example where you were like on the road, stuck. Never. Never. You need to get out more. Someone's got to produce the shows here. That's true. <laughs> Free and post. That's a great. It's <laughs> a really good point. Really good point. <laughs> I would. Yeah. <laughs> hey, here's a question. Uh, Friday, the game is on Friday night, right? That's because right. of the LDS tease. General right. Conference. Yeah. But here's the deal. It seems like Taysom Hill has got to be excited for the Toledo game this Friday because wasn't it the previous Aggie games that were on that Friday before General Conference where he's always breaking a limb? Only one of them. Oh, was, was uh, it only two of them? You're right. Two oh. of them. See? So well, all of a sudden, Toledo's yeah, got to just right. be awesome for him. Now, listen, it's this not is, Utah State. So Utah yeah. State's not until the you know final game the of the season. You know the same guy, right, that did it? Yeah, twice. but the, that guy's no longer – he's no Brian longer playing, Sweet. right? Yeah. He's no longer with Brian Utah State. Sauer. And they play on the last week of the regular season this year. Uh, so that, that ideology – I know good. that it's a, it's a weird dynamic, but the fact that it's not against Utah State yeah. just it's all good. takes it all away. It's all good. He's running differently. Yeah. I He's running less. Be, I want him to be reckless. Though. He has calculated recklessness right now. Yeah. He's like Jerem. That's my life. Calculated recklessness. <laughs> <laughs> Every day. I mean, because he calculates it. I mean, he could. He takes well, those pratfalls. I'm a very reckless driver, though. Are you? Yeah. I have less wrecks. I've never been in a wreck. Well, you've caused a few. Oh, did Oh, yeah, baby. Reckless. Turn it on its head. Boom, baby. <laughs> Jerem doesn't like to ride in the car with me because I really am a reckless driver. I, I've heard that. I saw you driving. Just chill. Everyone like walks. They all move to like the in the as close away or far away from the road when you drive by Spence for some reason. I yeah. Don't know why. <laughs> as you drive your go kart. <laughs> is that a lawnmower? <laughs> a lawnmower. What is that thing? <laughs> 
It's an expensive go-kart, man. It's a very expensive go-kart. <laughs> Can you imagine paying for a go-kart? Oh, my goodness. As much as you pay for a car. That is a Good nice grief. go-kart. Hey, what, uh, what's on your show today? Let's see. Tremendous uh, amount of reckless sports. Yes, calculated <laughs> recklessness in the form of us asking all of you across BYU Sports Nation how comfortable you are with this BYU offense. It's uh, been good and bad and a little bit of everything in between. Okay. Mm. I, I may or may not uh, compare it to dating a girl coming up. <gasps> Really? Yes, you may the, or may not use a, yes, a, a dating, dating metaphor. You know what that means. Yep, it's oh. going to happen, baby. <laughs> That's going to be a good metaphor, I can tell. Uh, well, like, it, was set up, it was set up by a tweet uh, from one of our fabulous fans. I'll read you the tweet that will set up the, the way I will attack this question today. At Colonel underscore James 83. Kind of like going on a blind date when he's asked to describe his comfort level for the BYU offense. I'm excited, but I have no idea if she will turn into a psych-o. <laughs> Ooh. How about this one? At Maddie underscore not Maddie. So who is she? Level of comfort with BYU offense like wearing socks and sandals. It's cool, but is it really? (laughs) (laughs) There have been some really good uh, Twitter responses. Well, but you got to be careful with the dating metaphor because BYU, I mean, you you just got to be careful because it's not about scoring. (laughs) And I think BYU showed last week they can score. Right? Yes. Are you with me? So just be careful. Are we still on BYU radio? I'm, I just to I'm telling you, you got to be careful. I'm trying to coach you. This is still on BYU radio. I am right? very careful. Yeah. Watch the metaphor. As far the metaphor will only go as, to a potential first kiss. As Matthew. far okay, as good. it is translated that's, correctly, that's all you need to. Because as a guy that, that talks a lot about relationship metaphors, you just I'm just <laughs> I just don't want you to step into that hole. That's sound advice. Sound yeah. advice. Be cautiously rest, yeah. reckless. You are the doctor. Thank you. He's a doctor. Trust him. Trust hey, him. He's a doctor. Guys, you're gonna have a great show. I can already tell, and uh, I'll tune in just to hear the metaphor. Yeah, don't forget about the most reverent interview we've ever done with Travis Tuiloma, who <gasps> has lost his voice and has had a lost voice, I think, for like more than a month. <laughs> So it's all very quiet yes. and reverent. Nice. Yes. Yep, that, that's on the show, as well as Parker Daw and his uh, passion for Twinkies after making a good play on the offensive line. You sound like the Godfather, not something reverent. Yeah, you well, do, you do also sound like Doc, the Godfather. Doc Rivers. Oh, oh, and Doc Rivers. Absolutely. Snow Blake's fault! Absolutely. Snow Blake's! Chris Paul's great point guard! <laughs> Okay, guys, go. You should end this uh, interview right now, man. Go, go have some Twinkies and get ready for the big show. Cautiously okay. reckless. <laughs> Knock them dead, gentlemen. Goodbye, sir. Thanks, Good man. luck with the metaphor. Yeah, you got always watch out for the the dating metaphor. Especially, you don't want to mix your metaphors when it comes to uh, when it comes to these things. Um, crazy story about a felon. You know, as if. You just got to think. How do you get the cops to laugh, you ask? You ask them if taking the police car you have just been accused of stealing is a felony. That's what Eric Sermons did as he was arrested last week after he jumped into a parked Daytona Beach police cruiser and drove away, complete with the blue and red lights flashing. According to the police report, officer's body camera uh, video released Tuesday showed the unusual incident where the dispatcher issued a be on the lookout for their own squad car. Police officers can be heard laughing when Sermons asks the question, so uh, is this a felony? 
Then Officer Steve Pignataro responded that stealing the police car was up there. Oh, yeah. It's like the toppest felony we can go with. Was that wrong? (laughs) Should I not have done that? I tell you, I got to plead ignorance on this thing, because if anyone had said anything to me at all that that sort of thing was frowned upon... (laughs) You know, because I tell you, people do that all the time. Little video of the... uh, the thief right there, Eric Sermont. He didn't know. If somebody had just told him that they frown upon people that steal police cars, mm, never would have done it. Never would have done it. So we've uh, we've gone through a lot on the show, right? We've talked to many a guest. We talked about the importance of emotional intelligence. If you missed our earlier hours, we talked about how to prevent terrorism by creating a better sense of belonging for those that are coming into the country and also interviewed uh, Harvard professor John Cotter about the importance of learning in organizations if you want to create stable ones. But we always like to wrap up the show with the hero story. And remember, uh, this is just one example of heroism, but there are many, many others out there. Today's hero is a motorist, a group of motorists that save a woman from a burning car. A band of heroic motorists save the woman Uh, From a horrific 10-car highway crash in upstate New York, the collision involving 10 vehicles left one car smashed up against the divider on the highway near Binghamton, uh, New York, and the car was completely engulfed in flames. Moments later, a group of men rushed over to the burning car and pulled the woman who was stuck inside out to safety through the front passenger window as others put out the flames with fire extinguishers. In a time of crisis, these brave individuals navigated through the flames, broke the glass to save the stranger's life. Binghamton uh, Mayor Richard David wrote in a post on Facebook Monday, adding that the women miraculously only suffered minor cuts and bruises. The heroes uh, remain unidentified despite the whole incident being caught on a dash cam from a police cruiser. Again, a group of human beings looking after and taking care of another human being. That's what makes the hero. And again, you're all heroes as well. You don't have to put out a fire or save someone's life to be the hero. Being a mom, uh, a dad, and being a great model for your children of healthy behavior, that's heroic enough. Just helping out in the community, going to church, taking care of uh, all of your duties in life is also a hero. Choosing a profession to serve and to give back, also heroic and just being a good, upstanding citizen as well. So we appreciate you listening. We can't do the show without you. We'll be back again tomorrow from 9 to noon Eastern time right here on Sirius XM channel 143. You can also find our iPod or our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Look us up at BYURadio.org. Check out the Matt Townsend, uh, matttownsendshow.com and uh, all these other resources and tools for you. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll be back again tomorrow to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until then, take care of each other.